Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. But today we're going to just do more Q&A. Uh, one of the things that's happening uh, over the next uh, couple weeks, maybe the next month, is that we're doing in transitions. We actually broke down the system. So our, our system that we've had for the last couple of years is now in pieces. It's in boxes. <laughs> There's an empty empty rack there. And this is uh, is running out of a uh, out of a mirror system. And um, and so we're going to be making sure that this all works and testing it and making pulling all those things together. And so um, so in, instead of doing as many of the second hours with external guests and so on and so forth, we're going to do some more internal things. You want to check the email. We're going to be doing some labs. Um, we're going to see how that goes. And so um, for the Q&A days, which you'll see more often during the next couple of weeks, um, we'll answer questions until you stop asking questions. <laughs> so so it, may, it may be two hours. It may not. Um, it's up to two hours, but it might be shorter. Um, we'll also jump into the labs early if we don't have as many questions, but we have an incredible panel here today. I was kind of really surprised. I came in on Monday and there's uh, there's probably a couple centuries worth of, uh, of knowledge, like all packed in here. So this is a great day to ask questions for that second hour. And so um, and so the uh, so these these I think we're going to have a great time with the next couple of weeks. In fact, I think we may decide. Well, let me, what are we doing with those second hours? So, so anyway, so um, so we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Uh, so so stay tuned. We'll we'll give you some more announcements of what's coming up. Uh, we'll give you a list of that a little later today. Um, but you can ask questions in Makana right now, and uh, you can use this little QR code here, uh, or you can just go to askofficehours.global and ask those questions uh, there. And you can ask them twenty four seven. In fact, some of the questions today came in sometime over yesterday someone was like oh, i got a, I got a question and they just threw it in there so and you can do that so um so you can ask those questions 24 7 with askofficehours.global or you can uh, ask them in makana on the day of the event and vote on those questions um so that uh, we know which ones you'd like us to ask first all right let's go jump into those questions bill what do we have well, our first one comes off that QR code system, and it looks like it's timestamps for 2.33 in the morning. So making Alex's point any time, it's from Frank William, uh, Wilson in Bali, Indonesia. And Frank asks, we have 50 guests sitting in two rows in a 30-foot circle in an open pavilion using handheld Sure wireless microphones. The pavilion does not have walls and a very high gabled roof. Question is, where's the best place to position four speakers and A, he thinks maybe in a circle, in the center of a circle facing out. We didn't get the rest of that, so I think it hit the limit, but that's basically what Frank wrote. Right, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I'll start out, uh, Frank. I, you got cut off there, so I'm not sure the uh, we're referring to speakers as in devices that make sound or people that are speaking. Uh, but in either case, um, I would do what your A suggestion is, the center of the circle facing out. And if it's the speaker's... The, the vices, I'd hang them up closer on the ceiling, maybe tilt it down to the audience a little bit and get them up high as you can. Um, if it's the people, um, I'd place them in a semicircle uh, best you can so that everybody has a good view and can hear what's going on. Yeah, I think one thing he noticed, I think he was talking about is the fact that there's a, the, the, the ceiling's pretty high. So hanging those speakers may be difficult. What we've done in the past uh, for this is either a semicircle or a full circle. We um, we have oftentimes put the speakers kind of, you know, here, 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 and here, and we've raised this up about 18 inches, so about half a meter. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll raise that up so that the, the speakers are either sitting or standing on this area, and then we put these little, um, these little long speakers down below, 
and then you have all the people out here. 50 people is not that much in two rows. I mean, for many people, they would be able to do that without, I would do that without any amplification. Um, but um, but that's, if, if they have stage background, <laughs> they will. If not, if they're a little quieter spoken, those little speakers there, it is not optimal, as Mitch has kind of alluded to. Um, the um, uh, it is you're going to hit people people as it goes out, and so it's going to get absorbed by that front row. I'd worry more about it if it was six rows or eight rows deep, but at two rows of people or three rows of people, it'll be enough amplification to work, uh, and it'll be kind of it'll be relatively easy to set up. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Bill. Well, unless I read this wrong, though, I think the actual – this is actually theater in the round. So the 30-foot circle, he says we have 50 guests sitting in two rows in a 30-foot circle. So if that's the case, you don't have much depth. Each side of the three – each quadrant of the 30-foot circle only has two rows of people. So I would think maybe just four floor wedges kind of covering those four areas – evenly might be all you need. You don't really have to get it up high because there's really not much audience block. Well, and again, you could do it in the same structure that I said, just move it all the way around. And we've done that in the past. Um, you do have to be careful. We did have to use, I think we used the WLM 185s, you know, to do those, the Shures. Um, they're they're going to be a, a hypercardioid or a cardioid, not a hypercardioid. That's the 184. Um, but the 185 is a cardioid and, and it we did use those for those wedges that we put down there below um, to keep, you know, to keep it going in the right direction. I will tell you, though, that a 30-foot circle with 50 will be 50 people. <laughs> like, like, I don't know how you'll, you'll have almost all the, in the first row, you'll have almost everybody if you do it in the round. If you do it half circle, you'll end up with 50 in two rows. I can just tell you from, the, from my experience that, you know, a 30-foot diameter divided by, um, you know, a 30-foot diameter divided by two feet will be 45 chairs. Um, anyway, so go ahead, Jeffrey. So after we've been picking this apart a little bit, I think they had option A, which was center going out, and I, th I bet you option B was from uh, behind the people coming in. And I think that's where the, the better option is because then you can get those speakers up as high as possible and point I, them in and point them down I, towards the uh, front. I will say that I would never point speakers at the speakers. At, at, at the people who with mics, <laughs> like I would never like that, that. That that the only thing that I won't do is point speakers at the microphones. So um, so that'd be the only thing that I, I probably wouldn't go out from out in. I'd always go from in out um, from away from the speakers there because otherwise feedback will be a thing. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York, and Mike starts with morning, everyone. What does a panel, what does the panel think of Sonnet's new Soundwire, a transformer balanced USB-C audio interface built into a rugged three meter long cable? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I took a look at this last night, uh, the video. Uh, this is what it looks like. It's it's basically a USB uh, adapter, sound adapter, USB-C, that goes through, it uh, looks like about a tw you know, 15 to 20 foot cable, nice braided, and it has uh, two uh, analog uh, transformers in each of those uh, uh, male XLR connectors. And they're encapsulated in, uh, they're sealed in epoxy or something. When he, when he opens them up, you see that they've been uh, potted uh, so that you can't really get to them if there's a problem. But the one thing that worries me is the fact that it, uh, here you can see how the, when he took the cover off the, one of the XLRs, so there's a, a small transformer inside there. So it goes from unbalanced to balanced 
in each connector. And that's the only thing that worries me. So you're sending unbalanced through the long cable and it only becomes balanced there at the end. So you might be able to pick up some hum unless it's a really good, uh, if it's a really good uh, double shielded cable uh, going out, that should be fine. And if it's only line level, then it should be fine too. It, I don't think it said whether it was line or mic level, but uh, I assume it's line level since there's a, some type of A to D converter inside the USB-C connector. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. It depends on whether you're sending uh, from the transformer uh, to the other side, which would be unbalanced to the... Uh, but then you would need two transformers. So I question whether or not it's it's only one direction or does it uh, asynchronous... It's an output, output, I believe. It's, it's an uh, output. Because of the, the uh, polarity of the Canon connector there. Then you yeah, can get away with one set of transformers in the uh, connector. Yeah, I, I don't understand. Like, I don't... Yeah, I don't understand why you would have a... Uh, oh, well, so... If it's digital from the USB-C and then is converted in, the only way I could see this working is if it, if it was digital from the USB-C to the Neutrix connector, so it's not converted to audio, but if it's converted to audio at the USB-C, dead in the water. Like, I'm not interested, like, like I'm, I'm not interested in that cable. But if it's, if it's converted, if it's coming out and getting converted at the um, connector, so if all the work is being done at the connector, that's a great solution. Like, you know, but I don't, but if it's not con being converted to the connector, I'm not interested. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I'm oh, sorry. I was just going to follow up with, with uh, if it's being done at the connector, you'd have to have two uh, mm -hmm. yeah, converters, one in each, and you'd yep. have to carry power down the cable to, to yep. get to them. You could do that, though. I mean, you, you, could, you could definitely make that work. And it'd be interesting to find, we should reach out to them and find out. Because, you know, if it's, again, putting analog... And the whole point of balance is to run the cable. Like, you know, like, so... so yeah, that was my point. Yeah, you're running unbalanced mm -hmm. until you get to the connector, you know, and then balancing it. Yeah, I don't understand. Um, yeah, it depends on what direction it's going. They should, they should be clear about it. What I will say is they should be clear about it if it's going to be where it's, where it's being converted to analog, to analog audio. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, this, this seems like a April Fool's thing. And, you know, I have Photoshop, too. I've made, I've made a few... You know, pretend cables <laughs> that, 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 that seem like that RCA seem like to HDMI, useful. XLR to 30 amp. That's a good one. That's, that's a pretty good one to have around. This is good. Uh, speak on speaker to air hose. And look there, I have it right here. I did this a couple of years ago. Yeah, there you go. It seems fake to me. <laughs> I don't think it's fake. I think it's just, and maybe you know, it, it might be clean in many instances. I mean, it could be they have really good cable. They they seem to be very excited about their cables. I mean, I'm very excited about the idea. I mean, I think the idea is great. I'm a little concerned about the idea that we that 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 idea would be unbalanced for X number of feet and then going into balance. This seems crazy. Go ahead, CJ. This one is my favorite one for charging iPhones quickly. It's all white. I can't see it. <laughs> it's blown out. It's, it's blown out. Sorry about that. And go ahead, CJ. Okay. Um, all I was going to say is the, uh, according to their the website, they do say it happens in the whoops in the USB C connector. Uh, yeah, sounds crazy. It's thirty two bit in the USB C. So that's the. Yeah, that's. I don't understand. Um, yeah, go ahead, uh, Bill. Yeah, that, that reading that caused me. I, at first, I was thinking, okay, if they're going to digital at the USB C and they're keeping it digital all the way and only doing the D to A conversion at the two XLRs on the end, that could be great. But I, I, that doesn't seem like they're, that's what they're and, doing. And if they, if they had the, U, even if they had the USB conversion, not in, the, in those things, but right at the very end, like right before they Y, right. and it just goes, I'm going to go into this, but, but I don't, 
you know, I mean, the whole, the, the thing is, is that this is basically a pod DI at that point, you know, like, and, and the, the thing that, like, if I'm at an event and I hear buzz, the first thing I look for is a, if I hear any buzz at all, the first thing I'll do is I'll look to see, make sure we don't have a, a, a malt box somewhere, like the, the press is, or people are tying into something. And the second thing I'll look for is somebody with a pod DI. <laughs> like I just walk down the back of the thing and I just pull the pod DI out and the, the buzz goes away. And I'm like, you're going to have to find another box for that. <laughs> you, know, like, you, know, you know, like that's, you're causing, you're causing, uh, and of course they can't hear it. Like when you're in a venue, the venue folks, that's why they use pod DIs is because they can't hear the buzz, you know, among everything else. And in the stream, we can hear it, <laughs> you know, so I'm just, you know, so uh, anyway, next question. Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington's up next. She says, we currently do podium with PowerPoint conferences, camera to Magewell to PC to Zoom. We want to be leaner. Is there a way to eliminate the PC and still use Zoom? Is there a device that connects to a camera and streams directly to Zoom? And his budget is U.S. $1,000. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I tried to think of a way. I mean, everything from the the Fire Cube, which is Amazon's little device that if you add a USB adapter, you can launch Zoom on that. But I'm just wondering why you'd want to get rid of the PC to be that streamlined. A friend of mine during uh, COVID, uh, our church had a ton of these Teradek encoders, and they were trying to figure out a way to still use them but get into Zoom. So he wrote a script which fires up. You could actually go to it. It's uh, stream to meeting.com and stream to meeting will allow you to basically shoot uh, from a little box like a Teradek and RTMP feed into into Zoom. It, it fires up an AWS instance and it does cost about a dollar uh, a dollar an hour. It's running or no, seven fifty, sorry. Uh, so yeah, that's one way, uh, stream to meeting.com. But I did go through and look at every single Zoom room appliance and I don't see anything on there that would be something worthy of stripping out your PC because that's yeah, basically, sort of, you need a way to get in. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think of like, there's a polycom solution or, or something else, but I couldn't, there's nothing out there that just does IO directly. Well, there is, but it'd be really expensive and it does right, a bunch right, of right. stuff like its own camera and its own speaker yeah. and its own audio input. So you may as well just use a Mac mini or small form PC nook. Or yeah. Something. I mean like a used M1 Mac mini is all you need. I know it's more, you know, and, and the reason I would say Mac mini at that price is because of the four core limit that a lot of the PCs at that rate, I don't think are under, they're underneath the requirement to get 1080p out, I think is the issue. And if you do there. go the Amazon cube route, it only does 720. I've tested it. So it is a cheap solution though. It's the cheapest that I've found because those things are like 129 bucks and then you just need the adapter. It's a it's a little USB to, uh, they have like the small little USB, micro USB, I believe it is, to, uh, to USB adapter, and then it'll work. Next question. Next one comes from uh, Wes Decker in Fort Worth, Texas. I'd like to create a tutorial of how to build a complex physical model in phases for the Vision Pro. Instead of shooting a time-lapse video of the build, I'd like to create a time-lapse 3D model and turn that into a 3D video of the build. Is that possible? Any ideas? Go, Jason. If I understand your question correctly, the easiest way to do that would be to version control your 3D model. So it's just a USDZ that is done in phases, and you can differentiate that with color or with time. Uh, it's the easiest way I can think to do it. Go ahead, Chris. And I couldn't really understand the question either. If the question is, can I make a time lapse of me building this 3D model? Um, there's a, 
there's different apps that do it. I don't know. I, I know in the Mac world, there's a there's an app called Screen Ninja. You can set how often you want it to take a frame, what frame rate to embed into the MOV that it makes, and it it's kind of fun. I did it once on a a day a day of real deep After Effects, play it back, and I'm like, wow, look at me, I'm doing a lot of work today. Yeah, I mean, I've done a bunch of these uh, for a variety of different subjects. What we're doing is building the entire object in 3D, and then you're animating all of those bits and pieces. So you you have them, and you may have them. The question is, is how complicated is the object, and does it do the objects interact with each other? So um, the things you get into is like gear gear assemblies um, become a little bit more difficult because your those gears are actually running at a certain thing and they'll run over each other so you really have to get the cadence of exactly what those are and the way to do that if you've got moving parts is that you want to build mathematical relationships so um, you're going to build mathematical relationships so when you're turning a crank it's actually turning all of those things in a in the correct uh, methodology and it's not it's not like you have to experiment with it. Every gear is designed to go at the, at, the, at, the, at the rate that it's supposed to go in relationship to the other gears. And so so if you're building something like that, you, you, wanna, you don't want to animate those things. You want to build their, the relationship of those things as they go together. Now, what you can do with that is then you basically put them on a, their own null. Um, and the reason you don't want to, like some people will try to use physics and other things like that to have them actually push against each other. The problem with that is if you can't pull them apart while they're moving. So what you want to do is you want to, you want to set the relationships between all of those, those pieces. And the, the app that I would use, the free app that you could use probably for this is Blender. Um, the app that I, that I would use for this is Cinema 4D. Um, you could make it look photoreal. Um, you can put all those pieces together. And basically what you would do is you would, you can open it up and you can have things coming in piece by piece and animating them. Uh, the other key is to start backwards. I mean, if you haven't done 3D before, I mean, everybody, every 3D artist knows this, but but when people start, they don't do it this way, which is start with a piece together and then and then go back in time and animate it away. So you start with it where you want it, you, the whole assembly is all together and you do the same thing with computer graphics and then you pull things apart as you want them to come in and then you can have them all, all come in into that area. Now you can do other things like, for instance, in cinema, you can have a, in the rendering, you can build a box, and that box is a um, is a boolean a boolean box that basically will cut all the all the objects while they go through it. So, if you want to show like a cross section of a moving engine, you can actually draw a box through it, and it'll just show you that. And you can actually move the box back and forth, and it'll just show you the cross section of that as it moves through. So, I think that once you move into something again, you'll you probably could do it in Blender. But what I will tell you is that the tools that you'll have to render a very complex system will be much better represented inside of Cinema 4D um, than they will be in Blender. Um, these are these are motion graphics tools that that are um, and and 3D animation tools that are much more robust than Blender is very good at what it does for basic stuff and and character stuff and they focus on. But this kind of thing is not what in my opinion, what Blender is built for. So Cinema is built for this. So I would, I would, I would look at that. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, so he, he wants to output a, a stereo vision version, a 3D version for the, uh, yep. for the Vision Pro. Would you have to then, once you do your animation, then move your camera, the interocular uh, distance, and re-render a second file and then sync them up? Is no. that how you do it? Or? There's stereo rigs uh, built into Cinema. So you can you can actually so you can set the you can just a, uh, interleaved or some yeah, sort of stereo. You can decide how you want to out, output them, and then the other thing is, it's a lot of the a lot of your editing packages, whether it's Resolve. I don't know as much about Premiere, but Resolve and Final Cut both have ways of bringing those stereo in and then rendering them out as needed. Resolve is probably the one that I've used the most in this in this area at this point. 
but you can bring those those in, put them side by side. You can put them, there's a lot of different ways you can have them, you can output them as interleave, as um, as side by side, as over, under, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways. You just have to decide how you're going to display those um, for the output that you're sending them to. Um, in the case of, um, of the Vision know Pro. What the Vision Pro uses for yeah, it file, uses, file format? Yeah, it uses HEVCMV, and so HEVCMV is a format that they're that that they that has been in in the MPEG, you know, for a, since 2015, but no one's really used it. And what it is is it's a uh, the one you pick one eye, typically the left eye, as the hero eye, and that is the full frame. Every frame goes out in that well within the P the P and B frames. The you have a full one eye, and then the second eye is a delta of the first eye. So it's um, and so that way if you if you have a monoscopic view, you can still see it. If you have a, um, if you have something like the vision, that would, you know, you'll be able to see it there. Now, if you're talking about, that's for rendering these out. If you're talking about actually viewing them as a 3D object and walking around that 3D object, now what you're talking about is converting all of that to a USDZ solution. So that's going to be a little bit more complicated because now what you're probably going to end up needing to do is, Export, you know, build those in whatever you're you're going to build them in um, in Cinema 4D or or whatever, and then you're going to probably take them into Reality um, Composer, and then you're going to build the relationships that I talked about in Reality Composer, and then you're going to export that out as an animated uh, USDZ or or USDZ with dependencies, and that's going to be a different. Um, probably good lab for us to play with but but it is a um so if you if you want it to be a 3d model if you want it to be a video cinema 40 is a great way to do that if you're talking about wanting to have a model of it then getting into the usdz pipeline is going to be where you're going to want to go with that um and that's going to be a heavier lift but a, i mean it is um i've seen a couple of these in the on in oculus where they're where you can pull apart engines and put them together and it is the literally the coolest thing i've seen in vr ever. Like I, I felt like you're going to learn, this is the way to teach people how to do things before they touch something. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are doing like, there's, um, big, big transport planes, um, uh, that are used running them is in the air is $40,000 an hour you know, to, to run them in the air for these very large transport planes, um, you know, giant transport planes. And, uh, so what you want to do is you want to be in a simulator, but the simulator costs a certain amount per hour. And so then what you want to do is you, you, a lot of folks are building VR solutions so that you can sit there and do all the things that you need to do inside of the plane, get, get through a whole bunch of hours of understanding what it is so that you minimize the number of hours in the simulator and you minimize the number of hours in the plane, um, and <clears throat> to get to the same level of, of skill set and or a higher level. And so I think that, that what I think West is, pushing against is going to be a huge use for anything that you think about on YouTube, like how do I build this? How do I do this? That kind of stuff is going to happen inside of the vision and meta, I think. Um, but I think that um, it's going to be a big, it's going to be a big deal. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Art Aldrich in New York. I'm trying to use the latest NDI tools on Mac to bring in NDI audio sources into a digital audio workstation like SoundDesk, but do not see any sources available. I know this is this functionality is in the Windows version, and I thought Mac too. What am I missing? Go ahead, Jeff. It is not on the Mac version. Another reason to use a PC for NDI if you can, because there's more tools available for it for free. That said, I'm dropping in McConnell right now a link 
AV Sono, my friend Pablo over there is a great, uh, great third party uh, developer for Max. And he has Max actually all, all platforms, but he has some great tools for NDI audio. One of those being a VST type plugin for being able to use NDI audio into the Mac to be able to go through their normal process. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. When Apple sent AirPod Maxes to influencers in advance of tonight's event, they mentioned the AirPods Max would make their viewing experience, quote, more spatial. How well do the major social video platforms, and he's noting YouTube and others, support spatial audio? Go, Jason. YouTube supports uh, first-order ambisonics and second uh, yeah, and first order Amazonic with head track stereo, which is six channel audio at uh, at 48k. I don't think Apple wants uh, influencers to be streaming that on YouTube, though. So uh, it's one of those. Eh, maybe. There you go, TJ. Yeah, I tried uh, during the last question to see what at least on iOS would work with AirPods Max. Uh, it looks like, at least on iOS, it's spatializing stereo, so it's not supporting the 5.1 stream. I'm not sure if you hooked up AirPods Max to an Apple TV, would that be the only way to get the 5.1 into those? Uh, yeah, you can, so um, Apple can stream, I mean, if, with HLS, it, it just depends on what the what's on the other side. So if you tag that, so the way this, the way this works is that you... Um, you build your, you can go up to about 916. Um, so this is, you know, so YouTube is at 5.1 and Ambisonic. Um, the, uh, with the, to set it up as Dolby, you can go up to 916. And the reason we, we mostly for live do 916 is because there's 16 channels in in a uh, SDI feed. And so we don't, you know, so, and, and 916 is enough resolution for that. When you say that it's Atmos, you know, Atmos is typically a mixture of beds and objects, but in our live pipeline, we have a hard time managing the metadata of the objects. And so that, so we tend to put them all, we tend to build the whole thing in an Atmos environment where we have control of those objects, but they get, they get folded down. And this is, this may be different for what Apple's doing. I mean, I, it's been a couple years since I've had to define that, that, that platform, but the, but typically that's going to get folded down into channels. Those channels are then going to be converted to EAC3 and that's going to be sent into the encoder and it's tagged as an Atmos solution. And so on any Apple device, it's going to come in and in the in the manifest that the that is generated for that HLS stream, it's going to say if you have you know it's going to have Atmos in there. It's going to list it as Vision and Atmos most likely. Um, most likely, this show tonight will be a Vision and Atmos experience, and and um, and so uh, and so the uh, so the and they'll probably take advantage of the high dynamic range and uh, you know that's my guess. I and I have zero information <laughs> so about about what's going to happen tonight um but the uh the they will um but then they fold it in so any apple device like if you have airpods with an iphone i if you have uh if if your apple tv is connected like i have a 7-1 system in my house i'll be able to hear it i would be able to hear it if i'm not on mac on office on, on mac break or whatever um but you should hear it in the house you should hear it on your phone you should hear it in the ipad you should hear it with a computer running safari on a mac so all of those will support um the the atmos tag um so because this is not really a channel or ambisonics it's a it's a it's actually a um it's actually a tag that just says this is atmos and any and every mac every apple device made in the last five or six years We'll know what to do with that. Um, some PCs may. 
um, be able to do that in some Android stuff. They, they do typically have, I mean, if you open up that manifest, you can always, to get to the manifest, um, you can typically go into Chrome of all things, take the stream from Apple and put it into Chrome and go into developer tools and you'll see the link to the manifest. It's a kind of a public link. It's not, you're not doing anything secret. You just, that's where you can find it. And you can open it up, it's just a text document and it'll tell you what all the, what everything's that's available to the player. And in that player, in that there, you'll see whether they're supporting things that would be really targeted towards Chrome users. Um, you know, so they, there's a, they do that, but um, the support of Atmos on Chrome and Windows has typically been pretty hit and miss. Um, and it's mostly because it's not built into it automatically. And so like Windows didn't want to pay the dollar um, <laughs> or they or whatever it was per computer to put it into something that they didn't know if people would use. And so as a result, it's just not in a lot of Windows machines. Yeah, go ahead, CJ. But in terms of platform, regardless of what you're watching it on, it's, if you want the true spatial, if that's really what they're going to broadcast, then your options are just HLS through the browser or are they going to stream it in the TV app? Oh, no, those through, I'm sure you'll be able to see it on the TV app. And if you, if you open it in the browser and you airplay it to the TV, it doesn't go from your phone to the TV. It actually sends the, the, it sends the HLS manifest to the TV and then the TV picks that up and plays it out. So, so if you want to see, um, so it's not like, and this happens generally in airplay. If you're watching something that's an HLS stream and, um, uh, the and it can the phone will send it doesn't always work um, some things like YouTube were hard to make this work I think they got it working now but it's handing off that stream to the Apple TV it's not that's why there's a little bit of a delay there it's waiting for the first segment <laughs> you know so so the so the um, so the TV is but it's handing it to the TV um, it's not uh, playing it to the phone and then to the TV that would be so so yeah you would be handing that and and when we test stuff like this when we test HLS or Atmos and Vision we very often will text each other a, a a link and then we just take that link in our phone and just airplay it and it just jumps into our whatever our system is and plays it out and we can see if it's working or not so yeah it's going to be uh it's cool um we've seen in the in the manifest apple's been playing with this for a long time like this is a probably they've probably been working on this for at least six or seven years you know like it's not this is, and that's the way apple works like it's like you don't even see it it's sitting under the under the covers, but if you open up the manifest, you've seen things happening in the manifest as they've started to work through adding these, and this may be, um, uh, you know, a bit of a show show and tell. If they're sending out headphones, they they mean business. So it's going to be, it, I bet you, it's going to be really cool. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Funchak Georgie in Dharamshala, India. I have a Dremel stand without the drill and bits. Can the panelists recommend a compatible drill and bits that fit in the stand? Jason, I'm aware of no Dremel stand that uh, no Dremel that isn't a Dremel that that fits in the stands. But I can tell you that I really like the 8220, and if you can get a foot pedal with it, the extension arm will will um, will make it all the more handy. Go ahead, Courtney. That's a tough order because the Dremel has changed the style of their cases over the years. You know, if your stand looks like this, usually they'll have. Uh, if it's a drill press stand, usually it'll have a place here on the right where uh, it has a hole that the end piece drops through, and then it has some means of securing the top of the drill at the top. And I looked at, uh, you know, choices. You can get a variety of Dremel 
type drills from China, the uh, Goa key, which looks similar, but the cases are slightly different, and it, it depends on whether the end is the same diameter as a Dremel or not. Here's one for like a kit for 34 bucks plus a 10% discount if you click on that coupon. So uh, you might check and see if it says what versions of what Dremels it's compatible with. Uh, but like I say, I've got three Dremel di drills, and they're all different diameters and all different shapes and sizes and what you know, powers. Good, Bill. Same experience as everybody else. I actually have an original Dremel that has a bunch of accessories for it. I didn't get the stand, uh, but I got a different stand, and the tightness of the. Uh, holders that hold the Dremel upright in something like a drill pest amount are very specific for that model Dremel. I wouldn't try to use a third party. I've also got a, a third party Dremel that I loan out to my friends when they ask me if they can borrow the tool so I don't have to break up my actual Dremel set and uh, doesn't even come close to fitting. So I would be wary and try before you buy. Yeah, and the, since we're at Halloween, I will say that uh, one little trick um, to the whole thing is that uh, you can do really good jack-o'-lanterns with a, a Dremel-like tool, but don't use a Dremel <laughs> because it will ruin it. Um, so, so the uh, it doesn't say, and and also you have to cover pretty much everything um, around you with uh, <laughs> I like made everything a big around mess it. One year, <laughs> yeah, it is, it is, but literally a Dremel-like tool. Here, hold on, let me see if I can find one for. I was I was going to see if I could find it. Um, hold on, uh, I'm trying to find a. Yeah, you can get like, a Dremel like this is for twenty bucks, and it's yeah. Disposable. So, so this is this is a this is a, a one that I did you know basically with a spackling knife and to get the major things. But you can see all like the semi-transparent uh, teeth and everything else uh, is all um, Dremel. So, uh, it, and I actually used a Dremel for that, and then it was <laughs> covered with pumpkin. Anyway, so it's a but it's a it is the. Um, it's, Wait a second. It, What's the right bit to do pumpkins? I used all kinds of different bits. <laughs> I was yeah, the little you, ones for the teeth. Between the teeth, you need the little thin ones and then the bigger the ones. Does it wire brushes and things? Oh, yeah. I don't think that would be a Oh, yeah, it does. Mess. It does. It's a big mess. And it's just <laughs> everywhere. Like, you have to cover yourself with, like, a lab coat, um, you know, to do it. I didn't do that the first time, and it was just soaked with pumpkin. <laughs> so, anyway, so, so anyway, um, but it's, uh, it is the... And I learned that by talking to someone who does this, like, professional. He was a professional jack-o'-lantern. Like, that's what he does for the last, like, week and a half or two weeks before um, Halloween is do these for all these stores. And so I, I looked at him. He was putting some up. And I said, how do you do that? And he's like, oh, Dremel. <laughs> like, like, you know, like that. Like, like, it was obvious. Like, we all know that. Like, that's how you do this. So anyway, um, yeah, try that. Next question. Wes Decker in Fort Worth, Texas. Up next, thank you all for creating this great show. I ran Apple's enterprise services team for years and spent much of my career focused on many of the solutions covered here. Watching Office Hours daily feels like coming home for me. Cheers to you all. Thank you, Wes. I go, Jason. Yeah, I think we would love to hear some stories if uh, NDAs well, would permit it. Not yeah, even stories. It sounds, Wes, Wes, it sounds like you... Uh, you might have some. You might have a skill set here that would be useful on the panel. So if you've if you've done all of this stuff for years, we don't we're not we won't push you on the stories. Um, you know, we'll we'll tell Jason he's got to keep that to to himself. Um, oh, but, okay. But but uh, but if you uh, we'd love to have you on the panel. So and that's a quick reminder. If you're interested in being on the panel, you can go to officehours.global/panel um, and sign up. And we do meetings. Uh, there's, there, there'll be meetings. Um, anyways, and we talk about it. But most importantly, get you kind of on the path if you're interested in doing it. It's a great. Uh, uh, it's a great uh, connection with a lot of people, and it really does make a huge difference. So, West, 
Um, we're going to op openly invite you to join the panel and be part of this conversation. A uh, quick reminder, of course, you can ask questions throughout the hour. Uh, you can throw them into Makana uh, if you want to right now um, and then vote on those questions. Or you can use this little QR code right there um, and or just go to the URL askofficehours.global. And, of course, you can use that 24-7. So anytime you come up with an idea, uh, you can throw those questions in um, and we will file those into the system as we go. Uh, next question. And it is yet another one off the QR code that's been very active today. Uh, Paul Wallace, this time from Cedar Creek, Texas. Guy, my X-Reel keeps rebooting on both Android and iOS. Any, any idea why? I go, Guy. Uh, before I jump into this one, I just wanted to throw one over at Jeff Keithley just for a reason to have these. So I was on my, my rower over the weekend and uh, I wanted to keep an eye on a vMix uh, show. And so I put <laughs> the X-Reels on and launched a... RDP client, which is the Microsoft iOS version, and the whole tablet turns into a mouse. And so you can move the mouse around and cut a show. You can start the stream, record everything. It's it's really cool. And the keyboard pops up too. So uh, to answer Paul's question, I jumped on the Xreal uh, Reddit forums, and it looks like um, there's other people that have had this, and there's some steps, and I'm going to go ahead and put that link in chat as to what the steps are. But I would also update the firmware, but the link will be inside of the Mukon chat. I go, Jeff. I bought one because a friend of mine uh, was just raving about them, and uh, I'm returning them today. Uh, I sat uh, Sunday morning and watched the Sunday morning office hours, and I did not like the experience. I felt like it was uh, just not there yet. Uh, I'm looking for better. I'm still looking for better. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that I, uh, I when I was, I had COVID a couple of weeks ago and I was laying in bed and I, I had to be, I was stuck in the bedroom and being able to watch, I watched all of Mission Impossible on it with my AirPod or my AirPod Maxes and my, and that thing. And I just laid there and watched a movie was not perfect. There are, even with all the lights off, as, as Jeff probably noticed, was there's a little bit of reflection in the glass that I noticed um, that was there. That's probably the most problematic thing that I had. Otherwise, it was a pretty good experience. And I, I I'm keeping them because I can see on flights me wanting to just, I, I'm, I already tend to put eye shades over so that I don't have to interact with anybody. <laughs> like so, so I, I, uh, um, uh, so I have eye shades and maxes and, you know, like, I, I mean, I put like a, a blocker on my eyes and then I have my thing and then I just kind of like disappear into my, into my world until I'm done. And that's always been a very dark world, um, that I just kind of like, am just completely off. Um, the idea of being able to watch a movie while I was doing that seems pretty fun. Yeah. Good recording. Yeah, constant rebooting. I don't have any of these, so I'm not speaking from any kind of experience. But uh, if it's, it could either be a software bug in the drivers, or it could be power consumption. It could be it's pulling too much power from wherever its power source is plugged into. If it's plugged into your Android device or your iOS device, it's sucking too much power. And then when a bright scene comes up or something, it could be causing it to, you know, causing the the phone to reboot or the uh, or the device to reboot. I don't know if they're smart in the device or not. Go, Jeff. I guess my my biggest thing about them was I, I liked the quality. I was impressed with that. Uh, the the visuals of uh, the comfortability probably would be something I would say that's a, that wasn't as great as I expected it to be after watching for two hours. It was it started to wear on me. I, I used to wear glasses. Uh, I had Lasix to get rid of wearing glasses, 
So the whole concept of putting glasses back on to me is foreign. I don't want to do that uh, short of wearing sunglasses, you know, for brief periods. Uh, but my biggest issue I had with them is I, I was playing it off of my iPad and uh, I have a 12 inch, one of the larger ones. I had it sitting on my, my, my lap and I looked down and uh, it's the exact same size virtually as, as if and the quality on that iPad was so much better than having to deal with my one of the things that bugged me is I moved my head just a little bit, the screen moved at the same time. It, and it's just, it's such a different experience and it's not truly a surround experience to me. So it's not like being in an Oculus where you're around a world and you can look around, but your screen's still there. And then you look back, which, emics, which basically mimics a real world environment, right? Uh, that screen moving around the whole time in front of me, uh, I even, I, I bought them specifically because of uh, guys saying how great they were with the uh, the video quality and things like that. And I agree with it. That it is really good. Uh, I tried running a remote camera with them. Um, same issue. It was just... It, it, Every time I moved my head, I didn't realize how much I moved my head around until you have a monitor in front of you moving at the same time all the time. And so to me, I just found it like it it just wasn't there yet. Um, maybe one day we'll get there, but it's not there yet for me. Go ahead, guy. Yeah, there is another device that you can get called the Beam, which that's what what pins the the, P, the screens in space and then allows them to move softly. Uh, I don't use it as much as I do just re my regular iPad because I don't like having the, the extra device, but it is small and it runs off batteries. And so if that battery dies during a show, you you're, it doesn't have a way to charge it. So you're, you're kind of stuck. But, so there is a lot of growing up for the product to do. I'm just excited at what it can do. I mean, especially when you're looking at a multi-view. I, I know you have the Sienna monitor app. Jeff. So uh, being able to be in another room and be like, hey, camera two, watch your focus. You're a little soft. And they're like, what? He's in the bathroom. Like, how did he know? You know? So instead of having all these massive monitors around you all the time, you can just slip them on and still keep an eye on a show. And there are some support um, within, I think, Nebula, which is their their app. Um, they are building up support for 3D as well. So it is it is a monitor for each eye. And there are ways to separate that out. So I'm more interested in the 3D aspect of it than I am in the, you know, I haven't tested it enough yet. I've been pretty busy, but um, but I'm working on that to, because I know that they have that in development. So next question. Next one comes to us from Art Aldrich in New York. Art says, thoughts on the Mackie DLZ creator as a live stream mixer. NDI audio mixing is interesting. I go ahead, Jeff. Absolutely. If you've got the means to buy it and it fits your needs, uh, channel count being one of those needs that uh, is great. I, I live in a Dante world already. So for me, I, I lean towards Dante solutions. But I also work in the NDI audio world too, quite a bit. Um, they did implement it a really good way. And I'm really impressed that they came out, uh, you know, especially Mackie. I'm sorry, but Mackie hasn't had the greatest of track record in the last five years or so. Uh, I've got 1604 still sitting on the shelf that are still working. But uh, when I went digital, I went to Yamaha and other choices. I, I feel like that the uh, first implementation is probably one of the best first implementations I've ever seen, though. Yeah, it looks interesting. Yeah, I'm all, I, I, I will admit that I always worry with Mackie about just build quality. They used to be build rock solid mixers and then they kind of went through a mode where it feels like they were trying to cut some corners and the the quality of the of the faders and everything else were just weren't weren't there anymore kind of felt like an alesis <laughs> so so um uh and so uh so hopefully that that that's kind of picked up there and you know so it but it, it does look interesting. Next question. 
Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Has anyone tried the control suite from OnLX? It looks like a solid Mac OS alternative to Universe. And he's got a link there. Yeah, we've looked at it. Um, uh, I've, I've looked at it in the past. I've opened it up and played with it. And, and I have to admit that if we weren't working with Universe already and we w- didn't have a whole bunch of stuff built as a Mac user, I'd probably be playing with this a little bit more. Um, given that we already have, you know, we're embedded, I just haven't had time to just experiment out of the gate. Um, it does look like it does a lot of things. It's probably not quite as mature as Universe is, um, but uh, but it is. it does look like an interesting um, product. And we probably should take a closer look at it um, because, again, Again, I'd love to have something that worked on a Mac that did what Universe did, uh, but uh, we've been really happy with Universe as far as the controller, the control end of things, um, to make make what we do here in office hours work. Uh, next question, Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, is up next. What do you use to reduce the size of your QR codes? Mine are made with Chrome extension, and they come out huge. Good, Mitchell. I wouldn't typically uh, recommend Chrome unless you're at a pinch and you need something quick, but uh, QR Factory is good. And recently, Adobe Express offers the ability to uh, to create uh, QR codes. And um, if you save them in a proper format, like a SVG or a PNG, uh, you can do what you need to do with them. Um, there is no, I, I guess there's a percentage of, uh, if you're using them in video, percentage of screen size to QR code. I generally make them as small as I can make them and still be readable, and you just got to test it over and over again. But they're very horsey, ugly-looking things, and you just don't want it destroying your uh, your video. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, QR Factory is the way to go, and this is a codified thing. My guess is that in Chrome, you are getting an SVG, which is why it looks the size of whatever you put it in. The readability level here, so here's askofficehours.global, and as you can see, it's updating in real time. And if I change this, you know, down to 200 pixels, it ends up, you know, what medium means at 200 pixels is really different as, um, you know, as what it looks at 512. So, uh, yeah, it is guess and check. And if if you can use QR Factory, try to avoid Chrome. I, I think that's a weird way to do it. Yeah, the uh, what I will say is that the um, uh, you you yeah I wouldn't um, I guess I would say that I, I I don't I'm not a big subscriber of the run of the mill like I can write a script and it'll just put out a QR code it is accurate um, the problem really is it's just really ugly and so um, so a lot of us use a lot of other creative tools to make it look nicer uh, as Jonas probably the best answer last week was Jonas's answer for QR codes. <laughs> Like he just broke down all the things about what are required, and you, so you you can go back and look at that. Um, and then of course I just said, well, Android should fix their problems. <laughs> so that was, that was a little rough, um, you know. But because um, most of the reason that you have to follow any rules for QR codes is because of that the Android reader is so bad. Um, so the Android reader is just a complete disaster, and as a result. Um, you have to follow all these stupid rules. Um, when we get, when we do other QR codes for everything else, and we just said, the reason that you'll see like askofficehours.global across the top of our QR code, that's mostly for Android users. Um, and the reason I put it under, and I write, I build my own URLs for every single thing so that Android users can type the quest, type the thing in because I don't trust the QR code because I want to make them look nicer because I'm putting them in front of tens of thousands of people at a time. And so, um, so anyway, so we, uh, there's a lot of creative tools that you can use. I use QR Factory um, because I don't want to. I don't want to use any online tools. The online tools actually produce prettier QR codes. The problem is a lot of times they put something in the middle, so it's bouncing through them. So if you stop paying the subscription to them, you stop 
it stops going to you, which is very um, risky in my opinion. Ahem, bitly. Uh, yeah, so I don't like to have anything in between. But there's but there's QR, like dedicated QR um, websites that produce an incredible amount of opportunities to make it look more interesting. And um, so I think that that's, uh, you know, being more creative is is really great. I just We just hope that Android someday actually learns how to use QR codes because they're only 30 years old. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. I'm not sure what your Android problem is. There are about 20 or 30 different Android QR code readers that are third party. That's the problem right no, that, there. But that uh, doesn't the, matter. Uh, it, it has, to be, it has th- to be from the photos. It has to be able to, I open up my camera uh-huh. and I get it in. The one built into the Android phone is the like camera. that you can open. You the, the, the camera, camera is a disaster. The and that's the only one that matters. Camera app. Okay. Yeah, you can never, we never assume that anybody is ever, ever going to download an app. <laughs> Like, you know, like that is the, like, if you want actual response, you don't want anybody, you know, you just always assume that they have to be able to hit it with, with built into the, into the, into the machine. Well, and, and Android, like, I'm just going to keep on pounding on this because I'm hoping that somebody at Google will hear that they need to like dedicate like 10 people to making this go away. And it'll probably take them like a week to get this working. So anyway. One, one thing I was going to point out is that the one, the Chrome generator that's built into Chrome generates QR codes like this has no sharp edges on it. Notice it's dots and rounded corner squares. So maybe that's uh, one of the problems with the accuracy of reading. And as you shrink those down, those rounded, those little dots kind of uh, aren't as discrete as the squared off uh, squares that are in your QR codes on the Apple or the ones that you've generated. Well, the, the maybe. Yeah, the squared off ones are the standard. You know, like that's the yeah, and uh, and a lot of us do produce pr- prefer those round ones, <laughs> so 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 uh, or round ish, just because they they look nicer. And go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the trick is to get it at the right size to fit the screen and still work. Um, here's whoops, here's a spot that I'm just working on, and I hate those things. I mean, they're ugly, and if you put the logo in the middle of it, it's just distracting. So I'm shooting for the best readable readability as opposed to uh, something that I can dress it up and make it look better. The only thing I did to dress it up is make it a complementary color to the background. Yeah, we and because we go crazy, like we we put those in, we get rid of that white background, we just stick them in there. But we put the little we we buy a short URL and put it right across the, the top so that it's uh, that's kind of the error correction for anybody who can't read it. But we will. Um, uh, like we take out that uh, for a lot of the, not for well we did that a little bit with our ask office hours one right that you can see here you can see that we used a black background instead of a white background there is a white edge because we did find that most android phones will if we just put that little white edge around the 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 uh, QR code um that the android will see it for whatever reason and so um but you know we went gray over black and then our logo and the and the text is white What's interesting about that is in HDR, that just blows. And it's just like, it's like little lights. It's, it's actually pretty cool. So um, so anyway, so that's what we've been kind of playing with there. But for other things, we will blend it right into the, like we just make it a color that's complementary to what we're doing over top of that, over top of that back color. And it works just fine. <laughs> you know, so for, you know, like I mean, when I say that, I mean, we did one where we had, uh, we put that up and we got 6,200 questions in about 20 minutes. So I feel like, it worked for somebody. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, next question. 
Next one comes from Lucas in New Jersey, and Lucas asks, I was curious on your thoughts on getting a network-attached sword system or Pegasus device for a single editor that uses both Mac and PC and needs to access both. Should I be editing off the NAS and Pegasus and or Pegasus system or on my Mac and then backing up to those devices? Thanks for the help. I mean, it seems like I would probably lean towards wanting to have a NAS at that point if you're going to have both your Mac and PC talking to it, it seems like a NAS would be the best, you know, the best solution for for that. So I don't have a, I mean, a Pegasus, you know, there's probably uh, Synology, um, there's a couple other, and then of course OWC makes, I think, a couple NASs that we talked about last week um, that uh, you could also look at. So, but a NAS is probably what you want if you're doing uh, multi-tenancy, um, you know, so so that's, that's really where you're going there. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have a specific one, but yeah, go ahead, uh, Jeff. We've been using a 45 drives uh, NAS for a while now, and they're beasts. They are just beasts. Now, they're not cheap. They're not a $2,000, $500 type NAS, but uh, they are for real. And, and definitely, they compete with some of the other bigger editor-based NASs out there. And great service. Can't can't help but rave about them. Uh, and Chris? Yeah, I think uh, I think the real issue with NAS versus a single drive like a Pegasus is if you're a single editor. Hi, mom. Uh, if you're a single editor, what do you need a, a, a big network attached thing? I mean, if you're in a work group with five or six people, now you might have multiple machines. Yes, that that could help. But a single editor, um, I, honestly, I have a I have a like an eighty terabyte um, QNAP. And I have a 60 terabyte, carat byte, I called it a carat, a 60 terabyte uh, OWC. And uh, I use the OWC all the time. I, the, the NAS is just total waste. The NAS is a byproduct from pre-COVID when we had, you know, five edit suites attached to it. Single editor, I just get a single drive. Go ahead, Jeff. I could answer that question, Chris. Uh, you're and my friend Doug saves every single second of video he's ever shot and recorded and he just keeps filling up nasas and nasas and nasas and nasas and he's one also got into the 45 drives he's got over like 200 terabytes online i think at any given time he wants to be able to instantly access it so there are certain people that may need that i don't think he does but whatever he that's how he works we save every, our rule at our business always was, if you saw an image on a screen, I have it. And I do, it's not, it's not attached. It's on removed uh, OEM drives that I've scanned. I've done this a million times. I scan it and it's accessible in a database. And I go, oh, I need to go to the closet and grab archive number you know, 257. Yeah, we same thing. We uh, went with PixelCore. We had probably two thousand drives that were that were there. That were all of the drives that we had had for every show, and we could find what a client asked for for the past six years in fifteen minutes. Like with you know, and it's just a matter of naming conventions and um, you know scanning the drives and everything else. But fifteen minutes though, we could have it up and be looking at it and and copy it over, and it was everything every single project we could go to and it was all offline like it was like they literally they were they looked like they, we, we have the hard you know, these are old spinning hard drives and they, there was a cassette and it just sat in there now what we did is there was a schedule in our archivist we had a full-time archivist because we went we generated about between five and ten terabytes a, a week of content um the uh, so we had someone that just sat there and managed that 
But what they would do is they'd slowly, when they had nothing else to do, they'd be going, they'd, they'd be working through the drives and they would set the, put, connect a drive, search for something and then, and then put the drive back in. And that, that would just keep the drives fresh. You don't, you know, like, you know, it's just, it just, they just work, they just work through the drives and they'd get through the drives every couple of weeks, you know, every, well, every six to eight weeks, they'd get through all the drives, um, you know, and just have them all just kind of um, staying fresh um, as, as we went through. And we, the biggest problem we had with that was not that we ever lost any content because we had two copies of everything. That's the other problem. Um, and, um, and so, uh, but we never lost any content. The hardest part was when we closed, we had, uh, we had all this footage and a lot of it has outtakes and big companies and everything else. And so we had to, um, it was a, uh, um, uh, it, it doesn't seem like drill a big press. deal. Uh, we a had, drill we, press we drill fest, pressed, yeah. we drill, drill pressed, uh, four holes into every drive and then hit it, struck it, um, with a sledgehammer and then put it in a box. And, and we just slowly worked through all the drives to, to do that. And, um, uh, it, it seems like, oh, that won't be that big of a deal. It'll take a couple of days, weeks. It was two thousand drives. It's a lot of blisters drives. on it's your just, hands. It's just, it's a lot it's just of like it's like it was like a it was it was a thing. It's, anyway, it was a much bigger project than we expected. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Testing low cost capture cards with our Panopto HLS encoder. Missing any data points? Uh, test video seems okay, and he's got a link there to a spreadsheet on Google Docs. Good guy. Yeah, Andy, I applaud you for putting this together. I was working on something similar because we wanted to know what's the difference between like a $19 capture card that's just a bare bones, no name, nothing HDMI to USB adapter. And there's a big difference. And uh, I applaud you for putting together this spreadsheet that uh, shows uh, all the points that I would put. I don't think I have anything to add. This is the important one here is, is it bringing in 444 color, 422. When I ran my test, uh, which I'll ship you this device, um, if you want to test it out, but this one was the winner, the Roland VO2. And they actually have a smaller capture device as well, but I would really trust Roland's uh, capture uh, cards. If you guys haven't seen the, the video that's in uh, for his testing, this is what it looks like. So it does have the X-Rite color checker. It has some footage and then it's got the, uh, um, I'm not sure where he pulled this from, but it, it, it's a really cool, um, just uh, gray with uh, colors changing. So uh, I applaud you once again for putting together this test. I really want to see what you think of the uh, Blackmagic ATEMS input because you'll probably find that the color is not accurate. So uh, it's it's one of those things that everybody should know the results. I mean, no holds barred. I mean, you don't have any vested interest in it because I, I made a capture card. So I actually had one that I've designed and had made in China and, and it does not hold up very well uh, in these tests, but it was an expensive one. And so I, I'd love to see the results with some of these higher end ones. Like it looks like the Mage Well so far the winner in this, but that's in the like $300 range. And most people want to get a Condor Blue, which you can see in that test that Condor Blue kind of bites. So uh, if your show is going out and it matters, uh, pay attention to Andy's tests. Thanks again, Andy. You go, Jeffrey. Yeah, I really liked how this was set up. Uh, my my real question is is should you be using more than one types of type of video? Um, I, I was at first I was wondering is is this something where you put in different cameras? But then I realized how you why you're doing this. Uh, so would a would a different type of video? Uh, give you some slightly different results. I'd love to see it with, because uh, you had the action fight scene, maybe something that's out in daylight and see how that works as well. Yeah, the, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the 
SRI would we we also look at that. Um, you know, the the SRI um, signals um, would be something we'd love to push through these. This is the probably the best best analyzation of of uh, inputs I've ever seen. So really well done, um, and uh, I think that it's um, it's a great way it's a great way for us to and and it'd be great for us to keep building on this because there's so many of these, uh, and there's little ones on on Amazon and being able to show what the delta is. I'd love to figure out a way to show these with a graph. Um, Oh, it looks like the the Ultra Studio Recorder was like ones across the board, like and the pile. The pile was the pile really? looks perfect as far as color reproduction. Yeah, as well as the pluggable, yeah. like interesting. Um, that's interesting. So, uh, so that that's a that's an interesting. Um, curious about that. Anyway, so um, anyway, I, I, it's a great start. Let's figure that out. Yeah, absolutely. And now uh, I'm going to do the announcements on the other side of the hour because I wasn't paying attention and we're going to jump into <laughs> the second hour. We got distracted. This is what happens when we do when we don't have a second hour coming up and we're not paying attention to it. A quick reminder, uh, th- welcome back to the second hour, but a quick couple announcements real quickly on the tail end of that um, is uh, tomorrow we're going to do, uh, we're going to do labs this week. So in fact, we're going to do labs for the month. So if you've got ideas, put them into the second hour ideas. Um, we're not doing, uh, we're not bringing in outside guests because we're doing a lot of tests. You can see like, for instance, we're a little uh, contrasty right now. We're going to try to fix that by Wednesday. Um, and so we're going to be constantly kind of, we're ringing out um, the second system or the the mirror system that uh, that John Wallace has, and so um, so we're gonna as we work through all of those things, we don't want to have external guests necessarily, and then we're gonna turn on another system and then another system, and so we over the next month or two, uh, we're gonna be uh, reordering. I think the goal is by the end of the year we'll have actually three identical system or near identical systems running. And then we're also, as a backup, we're testing um, on Sundays, you'll see us test, um, we're using the uh, Zoom Studio tools um, so that we're, so Sundays will are a different process. And what we really realized as we started to, you know, as we had to make this move at the last minute um, from 30 to 10, we realized, you know, we just how much pressure we were putting on ourselves by not having any backups. <laughs> you know, so like we can't take the system down for a week and work on it. We can't like rebuild it in a way that made more sense. It was a little bit of a hive of, of wires and you'd want to take it down and put it back together, but you couldn't um, because we would need more days than we had. So, so, um, so by building some backups, um, it's going to, I think it's going to give us a lot of ability to innovate as we kind of go forward. So, um, so anyway, so it's, um, we're, we're pretty excited about it. But you'll. Uh, but we'll be doing labs uh, tomorrow. We're going to talk about countdown clocks because um, you know we've done. I've done that in the past, uh, but we're going to kind of go very, very slowly. I'm not going to try to demo it. We're just going to kind of go through it. People can ask questions. I can talk about you know how I how I build those countdown clocks and why I build them and why I don't use off the shelf countdown clocks. <laughs> like you know, I'm I'm pretty uh, opinionated about that. I know you never think that I'd be opinionated, but I believe in building countdown clocks that look like they're part of the show. And we'll talk about what those look like and just noodle with it. It's not going to be the same. Um, on Wednesday, we'll have uh, the Korg Nano Control 2. We're going to talk about uh, loopback and, and the Nano Control. And I just have to say, if you haven't seen on our website, it's featured right now, so it's easy to find. Um, Chris here uh, did a 10-minute, 10, 10, 11-minute um, uh, video. And 
it's stunning. It's really, really stunning. Like it's really, really good. And it talks about how to use loopback, how to get it set up, how to, how to interact with the Mix Pre 3, how to tie that in with the Nano Control, uh, Nano Control 2. Um, and so what I would, this is a model that we're going to keep on trying to test in the future, which is here's a video a couple days before the show. Watch the video. You'll have better questions. And if you can, try to do parts of it. Even if you don't have the Nano Controller, try to do the loopback part. You can download a two-week version. You can kind of play with it. You can noodle. And we're going to be doing kind of more of those kinds of things, um, you know, with that. So um, so that's a great, uh, I would go up to our, just go to Office Hours Global on YouTube and uh, you'll see it. You, it'd be hard to miss. I think it's right at the very top. It's not at the top. It should be at the top. Um, anyway, so if it's not, somebody moves something again. And if, if people move things that I move, I'm going to be really angry. <laughs> like, so, so, like someone's going to get a bunch of angry emails. No, not at the top of the, I don't know about that, but I, at the top of Office Hours Global in, in uh, YouTube. Um, and then uh, Thursday Anatomy of a Commercial. So we're going to break down what it took to put together a commercial. Bill's, Bill's doing that. And again, these aren't going to be like presentations. These are kind of opening things up and talking about them. And what we're trying to do is not have it be a bunch of, a, you know, a big presentation. <laughs> like we're just, we're just getting, we're going to open it up in the second hour. Uh, note that if we don't have enough questions for the first hour, we'll just start early. Like we're just going to kind of, you know, like this is going to be much more informal than we've had while we're working through the other bits and pieces. Uh, on Friday, um, we're going to have the office hours migration. And we'll just talk about how it's going, <laughs> like how we're doing and give you some feedback. There it is there. You can see it's, it's on the top there. Um, and uh, um, the, uh, and then, um, the weekend, of course, will still be Q&A on Saturday. Uh, we're not testing HDR until we're just going to keep on doing what we're doing. And on Sunday, of course, not only will it be introspection, but it'll be inside of the uh, inside system, uh, the new system. We're trying to figure out how close, we know that we can't get to where we are now inside of Zoom, but how close can we get and how many features can we add and how many things can we get so that if we, if we ever had to run the show without, you know, if we have to get to a point where we run the show without... Um, uh, any hardware and we're just using Zoom, uh, what, you know, how close can we get? And the idea is that we're going to do that every week. Like just every week from now on, Sunday is going to be done inside of Zoom so that we can keep on triangulating that and just, just making it as close as possible as our kind of backup to the backup to the backup kind of thing. So, um, so we're, we're, and then that I think will also, we already saw some idiosyncrasies that uh, Zoom is, is, to, is logging as something they need to take, to take a look at. So our pushing at it, I think will help it not only us get better at it, but improve the product itself. So, so we're we're excited about that. Also, a quick reminder that our our um, we're going to get a lot more aggressive about the uh, about the show testing. So, there's a show we we have the um, show workshop, and really is turning into a workshop. So, that's at noon uh, Pacific Standard Time, three p.m. Eastern on Tuesdays, and um, this is the weekly lab for learning how to be a panelist or learning how to be a reader or learning how to do it. But we're going to be also, um, if you want to take your Zoom ISO bots and be part of that and jump into that, you're, we're going to open that up for you. So um, take a look at the email because there's a webinar link, um, join link, because we're going to be testing again. This is another place where we're testing, doing this inside of Zoom and kind of making that work. And so if you want to bring in ISO bots and so on and so forth, check the email out and uh, we'll go from there. All right, let's um, let's go ahead and go back to the questions, Bill. The next question comes to us from John Fultz in Sealings Grown, Pennsylvania. It's specifically for Jeff Keithley. He says, could Jeff kindly describe how to use an NDI discovery server and when to use it? Kindly, kindly describe kindly. this, <laughs> Jeff. 
I'm always kind. At least I try to be. Um, the, re the real reason to use one is if you're bridging different subnets would be one way. Uh, that, that was one of the original reasons it came out. The other uh, reason is because you need to be able to, to get the list of NDI sources that you have on your network. And if you have disjointed networks, meaning two different subnets, two different uh, areas, even uh, physical areas could be that way, like in a large uh, school environment or something or a large business environment. Uh, if you have different subnets, then the MDNS is not going to talk across those. So th that was the original intention. Uh, it is developed into being a much more robust tool. We use it in the cloud extensively because that is the way to use it because MDNS doesn't work there. So I, it really kind of depends on how many sources you have. If you only have two or three, four or five, maybe even 10 sources, it, it depends if you want to run that. And it's a small little service that can run on a Windows server or even on a, uh, a Raspberry Pi or something running Linux. You could run it off of Linux too. Um, it, it's not necessary, but it does make things a lot snappier whenever you get to high NDI counts. Uh, our typical show, we're using somewhere in the 40, 50 NDI in and outs. Uh, if that's the case, then uh, yes, it's it's absolutely uh, a dream to work with. And your list is, it populates, the thing is it populates a list. Like if you open up NDI Studio Monitor, you say, I wanna see the inputs, boom, it's there with the NDS uh, discovery server. If not, MDNS got to take a little time. So yeah, it just really depends on uh, the how large of NDI network you have and what you're trying to accomplish. Next question. Next question comes from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Since iPhone 15 has USB, can it be used to drive the Oculus Quest? I have an Oculus app on my phone already. I have no idea. Um, so yeah, we'll have to take a look at that. One thing I would I will say that if we have time on Wednesday, we'll play with this. If not, we'll. Uh, this is the. Uh, uh, I just 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 this just showed up over the weekend. This is the Dante um, USB C to Dante um, adapter, and um, it just reminded me of this because connecting to the 15. So I'm going to try to connect Dante audio to an i to an 15 you know uh, um, iPhone, which would be interesting. But as far as connecting your iPhone 15 to Oculus, I don't. Don't know if you can do that or not. I have great doubts that you can. I go, ahead, Jeff. You're gonna say something? Yeah, I was a little clickety clicking there. Uh, yeah, that works already. I, that was one of the main oh, okay. reasons I got an iPhone 15. <laughs> it was, works. It works with Oculus. Oh no, not with Oculus. Sorry, the Dante box you were holding up. Oh, it does. It does work. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Yep. Nice. Very good. And it just shows up as that's your mic. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, just like the cool. other USB did with the 42 adapters that you had to have in line. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Very good. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Would a productized Office Hours 2.something or 3.something platform also act as an enterprise MCR that could manage routing and transcoding video and audio content within and outside of an enterprise? Basically, a locally hosted enterprise restream Riverside StreamYard type thing. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, uh Locally hosted, uh, most of us in the business call that on-prem, so uh, on-premise. Uh, 
absolutely. But I'll be honest with you, most people that are looking for enterprise level would not be looking for a black magic solution in the middle of that. If they were looking for enterprise broadcast level, they're going to be looking into Ross. They're going to be looking into Grass Valley. They're going to be looking into higher end uh, gear uh, to be able to, to create more of this virtualized MCR. Is it happening? Is it possible? Absolutely. We do it ourselves. So yes, uh, in answer to the question, yes. Yeah, one of the things that we do think that what we're going to see what, what happens is the interaction between, it's not so much building any video show, but building a show like the one that we have. Um, we think that more companies, we're getting more requests from companies like they watch office, someone's watching office hours and they want something that runs like office hours. And so it's not, they're not asking for it to do anything. They're asking to do this thing. Um, and, um, and so I think that we're going to kind of dip our toe into like how that works. I mean, I think Own I Know is going to try to make that a service and just see how that how that looks and see if people really want that. And that that means they're using they're using Makana. It's all tied in. It's figuring out. Like, does that make sense um, in that in that process? Um, and of course, you know, John Wallace, who the system that we're running right now, um, they're going to use it internally <laughs> for their own stuff. Um, so we're, you know, so so that that system's going. What my what I hope to do is next year push the outer envelope, the, we're completing that kind of push to the outer envelope of quality, 4K, HDR, 5.1. At the same time, we're going to start ramping up cloud, you know, over next year. So we're basically going to, the goal is, is to be able to have something that is all running in the cloud by 2025. So over next year, we keep on testing and you'll start to see testing happening on the week, on a weekly basis, um, probably on Saturdays, you'll start to see us do the, exactly the same thing we did with HDR, which is that you'll start to see this other system running and you'll see the, the Zoom system running on Sunday. On Saturday, you'll see this other system that, that's cloud somewhere in the, in the future, depending on who wants to work on that with us. Um, but you'll start to see that happening. But the goal is, is as we kind of push the end, end of where we can go with quality, we start working on getting it out of hardware altogether and get it into the into the cloud there. Um, I think that there's somewhere in the future where that then becomes something that is just a node <laughs> that people can do that does everything that we're doing here. We were able to figure a lot of this stuff out because we were using hardware, in my opinion. Um, but we're, the, the goal is then to codify it into something that is something that you just turn a key and it just does all the things, all the things, managing the questions, managing all the bits and pieces, tying all those graphics in, building an entirely dynamic system. Um, but that's going to take some time, you know, to make that a turnkey solution. But that's what we're kind of thinking about right now. Um, and that would be version four. <laughs> or actually, that's version five, making a turnkey. Just getting work in the cloud is version four. So anyway, uh, next question. Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia, our friend, for a remote two-person video podcast recording, what platform will provide the best video and audio capture? She notes Zoom, StreamYard, or something else, and why? Good, Chris. So, Liberty, th this this is a multi-sided question. Uh, I, I, short answer, too long, didn't read. I would recommend Riverside. Now, let me say why. I love Zoom. Uh, we love Zoom. We are very dedicated to Zoom and all the work that Andy and the team there have, have done. Uh, but Riverside works quite well. There's some caveats. There's definitely some caveats. I will tell you this. Uh, as you know, Riverside records locally, so you're never going to get any uh, internet hits. Um, one time, I finished a Riverside recording, and it took three hours for the file to un upload. Nightmare. Usually it happens in seconds. 
Um, and and then the other thing that I want to mention is that sometimes when we jump around between services, we we sour on a service because it doesn't do a thing exactly the way we want it. I'll give you an example. When when we do a, um, a qu- the questioner, the host and the questioner here, we have sort of a 60-40 split on the screen. Um, when we were uh, toying with um, the Zoom events system on Sunday, we couldn't do that. It had its way of doing it. And if we, and if we absolutely demanded, you know, doggone it, it has to be 60-40, this is ridiculous, this doesn't work, I can't use this. It's true. But sometimes if you just sort of back off a little bit and go, what do, so what can you do? What can you do? And, you know, Riverside does some neat stuff where, like, it'll give you a two-up at the, like, at the end of the thing with both of your people. Um, I believe it even has, like, a little editor built into it. I would definitely look at it, uh, but, but from a big-picture thing, when we look at services, sometimes you want to open your, open your mind to what they do offer and say, it may not be exactly what I want, but you know what? It does work, and it solves so many other headaches if I just kind of say, okay, we'll go for a 50-50 split. And usually what, what I do is we'll go with 50-50. I, I call this practical perfectionism, which is that I'll just go with what, what does the system have right now, but then I'll make a bunch of requests of, the, of, of, of whoever's making it and, and you know, like poke at them you know, over and over again. Like, for instance, we're going to move. So we've been doing the Michael Krasny show, uh, graymatter.show, um, on Zoom for the last year or year and a half, and we're moving to Squadcast um, this week. So, um, and the reason, is, the reason is specifically because of what Chris talked about can't do local recording. I don't have any and any idea, even though Zoom talked about local recording, I haven't, don't have any idea when that's actually going to happen, and we just have to cut bait. So, so anyway, so we're moving away from Zoom and into Squadcast. So we've been doing R&D inside of Squadcast, and what we found was that we could you know, have two people talking back and forth. We can then go in as producers separately and pull full-res screens live from each, each person that's in the Squadcast. So we can actually then reproduce, you know, and then we can drive that into a switcher and reproduce what we want. We're not going to do that at first. At first, what we're going to do is take the side-by-side. This is exactly what Chris was talking about, two side-by-sides. And then we're going to put a mortise. Well, the first one, we're probably just going to be happy that we have two side-by-sides. We'll stream it. But but where we're going with it is we'll put a mortise over top of them so that it just packages it nice with a nice frame. Um, so we'll, we'll have the gray matter, whatever that we want, and it'll just sit over what Squadcast is delivering to us. But where we're going with it is reproducing exactly what we were doing in Zoom with Squadcast, which is two full screens that go into a switcher that are then tied together um, and put out there. And then, but what we're getting on top of that is the local recording. Um, you know, and so we should, we don't think, we think that within a month, there won't be any difference in what you see in the live stream for graymatter.show from live, you know, from Zoom versus Squadcast, except for the fact that we get much better we get a much better record on the other end. Um, I have to admit that the Riverside thing, it was the thing where the, does it still do that weird crop? Yeah, so I was going to say, there's a couple other. Makes me so mad. Like it just, it just like, and that's just BS. It's 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 just maddening. It's, and they're doing it to get you to pay more, right? I mean, that's the, yeah. They absolutely are. If you buy the Enterprise, you get the full roster. That thought process is undefendable. It's, in, it's yeah. undefendable. It's why I won't use Riverside. It's, like, yeah. like it's, it's literally that one little thing. They crop the video if you don't pay enough. It's just... 
they crop about ten or fifteen percent. Yeah, uh, and the, their dirt, excuse dirty. is their excuse is well, it's less to stream, and you just have to see, you just have to be able to hear what they're There's, talking about. Also, I will say this uh, because they focus on local recording first, uploading second. The viewing experience sometimes is really bad. It's really bad. And and I get text messages during recordings. Uh, one of our clients refuses to use Zoom. They just like, nope, not going to use Zoom. We'll use Riverside. Fine, whatever. Uh, so I get these text messages. Oh, is it dropping out? What's going on? It looks really bad here. It's like, it's okay. It's okay. Calm down. Yeah. And and it gets old making those excuses. But yeah. I totally agree. The, the enterprise thing. And the other thing about the enterprise is you go, well, how much is the enterprise? Well, why don't you give us a call? We'll chat about it. It's like, yeah, it's like... You know you're in trouble. Yeah. So I don't. I I think that my my biggest complaint about Riverside why I won't use them is because of their business model, not because of their technology. It's just that they. I just feel like it's you know, it's just a, it, it, I just don't you know. And Squadcast so far has been everything super transparent. You know, it's all it's all you know. Um, you know, I think that they're the. Anyway, so I think that they're they're a better solution for that, uh, in my opinion. So, and I've used them on and off, not as a user, but as a participant. When I get asked to be on podcasts, almost every single time, I'm asked to be on a podcast, I'm sent a Squadcast link. You know, like so I'm I'm on I so I've been the receiver of that for years, maybe four or five years, um, and so uh, so I and and I've just never used it, used it, and so um, Jeff Cohen has been the one that has been really spearheading that on our end. To figure it out, he's done a great job, and so we're we're doing the first one. We'll see how it goes um, on the first one. We know that we'll get a great record, <laughs> and so we'll see how the stream goes. Um, but we think that that's going to uh, be a pretty good solution. It, it's a little bit more cumbersome than ISO if we get to more than two or three people, um, but but we think that uh, it'll be worth it. Um, next question. C.J. Clavel in Downington, Pennsylvania, here on the panel says, speaking of X real. Besides plugging into devices like the Switch, what's the benefit of the Beam? I know that we, there are supposed to be apps, but it's pretty bare bones as far as I can tell. Go ahead, CJ. Yeah, so as much as I appreciate the early aughts iPod aesthetic, click wheel looking thing here, uh, I got the Beam hoping that I could, without needing to run Nebula or something like that, do the three displays in space. And then when I opened it up, it seemed like the only real thing I was getting was, okay, you can now pin the monitor. And then, and it's, I'm, I'm not sure what I bought. Yeah, go, go, go ahead, guy. Yeah, so you could pin a monitor, and then the other thing that it does is it's a Aircast or a Miracast or a Chromecast type device. So instead of having something uh, like your iPad with you, you could, especially if it's a client, you could just give them this $100 thing and it's pretty durable that falls. You're not breaking a $1,000 iPad. So you would control what they're seeing on another another device and cast it over to them via AirPlay. So that's where I found it to be the most beneficial. But you're right, it's not like Nebula of having a Mac and doing the three up. The other thing it does is that smooth tracking and body anchor are the other two things that, the, that this device allows you to do for the 119 or whatever dollars. I'm not using it as much. I like plugging it directly into the iPad and having my my does app it, so I can actually control things uh, right then and there. Does it fix the HTCPT problem that you get with um, plugging it directly in? Um, a, a little birdie told me that uh, I'll talk to you offline. No, I don't want to say it. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'd like to be part of that phone call. Now, CJ, so, so from what I understand, you're saying that a product doesn't work exactly like it seemed like it was going to in the demo. Is that what I hear you saying? I find that hard to believe. That's shocking. 
fingers crossed that the developers give us some more apps for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think that it's, um, it, it depends on the pickup, you know, like you get apps starting to get built if there's enough people out there using it. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions throughout the first, uh, throughout this second hour. We will continue to answer questions until you, until there aren't any questions left or we get to nine o'clock, one or the other Pacific Standard Time. Um, so uh, if you, you can throw those questions in uh, to Makana and vote on those questions, or you can put them into uh, office hour, askofficehours.global. Um, and you can use the little QR code that we put up every once in a while, but we're not putting it up right now. <laughs> All right, next question. Next question comes to us from off frequent panelist Nigel DeSau. Uh, when would I use a hypercardioid versus a cardioid mic? Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Well, specifically, uh, if you're in a noisy environment, if you have a cardioid mic, which is what I have my pattern set on my 414, um, it just means how far off access I can get. If you go to hypercardioid, it's going to reject more of the uh, outside surrounding sound, maybe up to 90 degrees, and then it's going to start to fall off from that. The only disadvantage of a hypercardioid is it has a bit of a lobe uh, out the back of the uh, uh, of the of the pattern, and uh, sometimes the noise could be back there and cause you problems. And if you're using a lav, it can be really critical, um, even if you could get a hypercardioid uh, lav, because you want the lav to be omni. So if you're turning your head from side to side, uh, it wouldn't be a problem. But if it was a hypercardioid lav, as soon as you turned your head to talk to somebody, it would drop substantially. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Mitch covered a lot of it there. If if you're using it to isolate uh, sound from a particular direction, uh, so that if you've got uh, if it's just ambient sound all around, it'll help a little bit uh, because it'll eliminate a lot of the sounds coming from off axis. Uh, but uh, or but if you have something like a refrigerator behind the person you're wanting to point at, it's not going to help you out because it will accentuate the refrigerator as well as the person's voice. Uh, if the sound source, the unwanted sound source is off to the right, you know, 40, 90 degrees or so, it will help you out considerably in lowering the ratio of signal to noise ratio of the unwanted noise to the wanted noise. But be, be uh, very careful in mind that... Uh, uh, it has to be aimed accurately, and if your subject is moving around, moving off mic, uh, you're going to have to follow them with that hypercardioid. So uh, a boom person is necessary if it's a moving subject. If they're static, it works great to isolate it from the rest of the surrounding sound. Go, Bill. And just a helpful note, remember that all microphones are more directional as you get higher in frequencies. At the low notes, particularly bass, everything is an omni no matter what pattern it has. So if you've got a guy with a boom box outside your house and they've pumped up the bass, there's no microphone that's going to get rid of that. So just it's helpful when you're trying to pay attention not to think of the, a shotgun mic as something with that tight a pattern. They all are tighter the higher up they go to a certain degree. And the the short answer uh, that I would give is almost never. <laughs> like, like I've had so much trouble with hyper hypercardioids that I don't I don't I try not to use them. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from C.J. Covell again in uh, Downington, Pennsylvania. Does anyone have any experience with magnetic iPad stands? He's in pursuit of put everything on an arm, and this one looks pretty interesting. And he's got a link there. Go ahead, C.J. Yeah, this uh, really piqued my interest this morning because. Uh, I've got kind of a, an iPad that's on a tripod mount that it's cinched into on a magic arm. And now I'm looking at this saying, oh, wow, I could just just pop it on and off. 
Uh, I know the magnet's a really strong once I uh, stuck my iPad to the side of a filing cabinet for an extended period of time, so <laughs> I know that it works. I just, uh, I figured be, this is half question, half PSA of things that I think this panel would like. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Jason. Oh, man, you're spending my money. Uh, most of the iPads that I use in production are actually minis just because I, I find that they are less tedious. And to that end, the one that I found to be most useful is non-magnetic, although the one you showed us is pretty promising. This is the one that I, I really like because it, it extends out and it allows you to do just about anything, and it locks. It's got a joint that will completely lock so that you can type on the iPad and you don't have to worry about whether or not... Um, you're going to kind of put it one way or the other. I go ahead, Courtney. I was kind of confused as to how this works because the iPad is aluminum, which is non-magnetic, you know, non-ferrous metal. But uh, what it is is you put it into a silicon case that has neodymium magnets. Well, the built pros into the have case, right? have a bunch of built-in magnets so that it can stick into to the, the magic case. keyboard stand. Um, oh, I see. Okay. And they're like I said, I've put it naked next to next to a good old-fashioned filing cabinet, and it's uh, it's on there. So I don't have any of the pros. That's why mine keep falling off the filing cabinet. Uh, so, but the the one I think you pointed to does have a magnetic case. So in case your your iPad is not one that has the magnets built into it, I think it has uh, some type of magnetic in there that holds it to the the uh, arm, the stand with the arm on it. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Chris. Yeah, I will say that I got into the understanding the whole MagSafe thing way too late. Like, it took me, like, two years to figure out what MagSafe was about. And I now have a MagSafe mount for my phone in the truck. And it's it's awesome. It is really cool. And I'm sure, you know, if it works for the iPad, I would highly, highly recommend looking into it. It's just the thing I like the most about it is one-handed, I can shift it from uh, portrait to landscape. And it used to, literally, I used to like, while I'm driving down the highway, super dangerous. I love the the MagSafe mount in the in the truck. It's made, my, my particular one is made by Bullet Point Systems. Super cool. Go ahead, Bill. My biggest problem is that my iPad Pro lives inside of a case. And I love these cases that have a strap on the back of them. Because I can't tell you the number of times I want to use this in a field, either for monitoring video signals or taking notes or something like this. So the problem with this is that once you get into a case this thick, almost none of the mounting things work very well. Uh, I've gotten down to the point where if I want to put this on an arm mount of some kind, I have one that has a couple of big kind of feed on it and I can lay it back in there, but it's not as secure as I'd like. So for me, it's either naked iPad, which to me seems risky, or an iPad that is in something like this and almost none of the mounting devices work for that. That's just a conundrum that I always face. There you go, Jason. ProClip USA, since we're on to magnetic mounts, um, ProClip USA is has just about every single kind of car mount, and I use the magnetic mount. So a lot of the cost of um, ProClip USA is not where their ingenuity is. Um, they will work with any car, and then if you get the magnetic mount, then all you need on your phone is a tiny little disc back there, and it won't interfere with MagSafe. Right, go ahead, CJ. One more... Uh on the theme of magnetic mounts, the an iPhone case that is really, really strong is from a company called uh, Magback. And one time, actually, Chris made me think of this story. I had this one of these cases on my phone. You don't have to get them in clear. They're actually nice and blue and black. 
but I actually had it on the side of my car so that while we were on a camping trip, we could take a big group picture. But it was at the end of the trip. And then I left it on the car as I was driving away and it made it 30 miles and, you know, the phone was fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, You know, my temptation would be to do something more. um, So like looking at what you're what you're doing there. um, So all of my monitors that go around my my thing are all based on visa mounts. So they're all, you know, I've got these arms that all move. And so, and one of them happens to hold an iPad or my Wacom tablet or Wacom tablet. Um, and, um, and it just has a, you know, it just has a clamp on it. And that's so I can jump between iPad and Wacom tablet. Um, and the Wacom tablet doesn't have a way to do a magnet, although I, I bet you if I put a piece of metal on the back of it, it would. Um, so, so I, so I may, I may do that. But my temptation would be to look at something um, that looks like this. This is I haven't bought this, so I don't know. But this is the you know this is a magnetic wall mount. So it's designed. It has a mount on the back, but it then and a hinge. But it then that that big plate is a um, you know is a magnetic plate for the iPad. You can see kind of a cutout for it there. And so um, my temptation would be to do that, and then to retrofit this back piece um, for either drill it out myself or just glue a visa mount to it so that I can draw, you know, but I'd probably just um, drill and tap that, this back area um, so that I could um, use that as a, you know, with my current visa mount system, but then have the magnetic piece to it. And, I'm, you know, I'm afraid you're probably going to cost me $69 as I try to figure this out because it seems like such a great, like, I, you know, being able to swap, I, I have to admit, I'm a little hesitant to sw- swap between the one that I have right now um, the, where I have my Wacom tablet, it's a little tricky. And, and so being able to just slap it on there might have me move more often. So anyway, interesting. Next question. Next one comes from Paul Wallace in Cedar Creek. I opened my Android TV and got a message that quote, Google play just became shop kind of unimaginative. What do you think this name shift of this name shift by Google? Uh, and this comes from the QR code. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I think the marketing department, uh, I think a lot of people were confused by the Google Play because it sounds like a game portal of some sort. So people want to, you know, would, that's where you look for apps on the Google Android uh, TV system. So uh, they changed, it used to be Google Play Store, which meant, okay, its store was the, the idea that it's a shopping place. But so they just changed it to shops because it's one word that'll fit under the icon neatly. And it describes exactly what it is. It's a place to shop for apps and things that you will run on your Google device. Go ahead, Chris. The word shop immediately goes to my wallet, which I find bothersome. I, I think one thing that may be in, in play here, no pun intended, is, uh, you know, Google is a 25-year-old company. Uh, and I think that there is a whole generation of people that might look at Google as like, you know, the way it used to be, you know, you, uh, that, that, that's, that's where we used to search for things. That's where my parents search for things. If I want to find something out, I'm going to go to TikTok like the kids do. So it may very well be just trying to distance themselves from the name Google. I, I know I avoid it. The um, I, I think that I, I do think that Google is kind of growing up, <laughs> you know. Like there, it, I think Play felt very informal, and I think there was a lot of Google that was cutesy in the past that's becoming a little less cutesy um, as they kind of move forward. And so I, I, I think it's great. I think moving it to shop from Play, Play always to me seemed weird. Um, I think maybe they they wanted. It, I think they, they saw games as a bigger part of their market than it actually turned out to be. Uh, next question. 
Michael Tan here in San Diego says, Good morning. Any panelists have recommendations for powered USB hubs? Trying to use it for additional large stream deck with a Raspberry Pi. I go ahead, Mitchell. Michael, uh, make your way over to OWC. You'll see a whole bunch of them from big to like 12 to 15 type uh, USB connections to it to a cute little mobile one. Uh, the trick when you're buying a uh, USB hub or a dock is to make sure it's got a decent power supply with it to uh, be able to control or power all of the devices that are going to be connected to it. But I think the, the mobile version that they have would suit you just fine with OWC. Go, Jason. Or if you don't want uh, to buy your own, you can supply your own. So this, I think, is the one that Mitchell is talking about. This is the OWC USB-C Travel Dock E. I have not used it with a Raspberry Pi, but I have never found a scenario. And I, I kid you not, rarely do I get to use the superlative never, but I've never seen a USB-C where it doesn't do exactly what it's supposed to. And the QR code down there will, will get you right to where you need to be. I go ahead, uh, Chris. Very clever with the QR codes there, Jason. Uh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, to me, I have I have one of these. Uh, it's quite good. Um, I'm actually running two separate webcams through it right now, and I know that that's typically a bozo no-no. Uh, the webcams want to be plugged directly. I always think about what you're plugging into it. I think a Stream Deck into a hub is, is fine. Uh, Courtney, oh no, Mitchell mentioned something about the power supply. The thing that's interesting about this thing, this thing fits in the palm of your hand. It's really small. The power supply that comes with it is like four times the size of the hub. It's it's like I was digging through stuff and I was labeling, you know, like uh, Alex mentioned that the the brother cube is like the the uh, the Walmart labeler. Cube plus. Cube plus, yes. So get the cube. I got the cube first, but get the cube plus. P touch plus. P touch. Uh, it's the, it's the Walwart, Walwart labeler. Uh, yeah. It doesn't look like it belongs. Like, which of these things doesn't belong? This power supply for this uh, Thunderbolt hub, I, sw I swear, it's four times the size of the thing. It's, ri it's crazy, ridiculous. A lot of the OWC stuff is that way. It, it works. I got it, Bill. Just another vote for the one that Jason showed us. I have that same OWC small connector, small dock in my voice booth. And whenever I travel, I pull it out of there because it's so small, convenient, but it does a lot of things. And boy, it's so nice to be in a hotel and realize that they have a wired Ethernet connection so you don't have to be stuck on their overused Wi-Fi. Go, TJ. Uh, one more, if OWC isn't your thing, another one that we use a lot uh, with the business is from CalDigit. Uh, they make a couple really good Thunderbolt 4 hubs, but then this one uh, is of the small variety, but has an external power supply. So that might be what you're looking for. Yeah, and we have uh, the Cal digits, I'm sure the newer ones are, are probably much better. The older ones, we had some issues with audio and video um, issues. If you ran your cameras or your mics through the Cal digits, we were having some some issues with those. And so that's the only only word of warning. But otherwise, I, I have a couple of them myself. I just don't run things through them. Uh, next question. Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area. Any new and noteworthy NDI router apps other than Rascular, Zen NDI, and Sienna, ideally controlled via companion? Go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Throw it right at him. No, never mind. I go with your guy. Looking, so I'm gonna yeah. go ahead and grab it. Uh, NDI tools, just what's built into NDI five, uh, should do the trick. Uh, Kilo View Core is another one. Bird Dog um, has Bird Dog Central. Um, 
if you need to actually do some kind of transcoding along the way, Intenor um, is another, and uh, AJA has the bridge right. for those solutions as well. Uh, next question. <laughs> Funsak Dorji of Dharamsala, India. Hi, panelists. Can you recommend a digital uh, asset management damn software, open source or paid, for a small NGO with a lot of historical photos or videos? Thanks. Uh, I don't. I have to admit that I would love to say for my for my own personal use that I'm using photos as my damn. Um, uh, but I I'm trying to think of you know good. We haven't needed a commercial. Uh, digital asset management software for quite some time, and I'm 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 coming up as a loss to really thinking about exactly what what would be the best one there. Go ahead, Jason. You're going to be really uh, okay. Yeah, this this has gotten much harder because photos actually works now. I would say Lightroom. Uh, Lightroom might be your best bet. Lightroom could be, yeah. Um, but I, I again for a smaller group, and I um, there have been there was one that had. I don't know. I, I have to think. And, and let us know. Ask that question again in a couple of days. And then also let us know if you're looking for Mac or PC. Because uh, there are some Mac ones that I think that I might be able to come up with there that are good. Uh, but they may not be they may not be cross-platform. Or if you need them cross-platform, let us know. Next question. Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. Follow-up for the iPad stand. Can it work in your own case or do you have to use it naked? Go ahead, CJ. Yeah, looking at the website, they definitely want it to at least they want you to assume that it's going to be naked. Uh, but, like, just looking at this, eh, I, I don't know. If you had a really thin case, you could probably get away with it. But if it's not doing magnetic pass-through, uh, you're going to have you're gonna have some trouble there. I go ahead, Chris. Sorry about that earlier. Uh, the case that I use on my phone, Jack, it actually, uh, what did you just call it, CJ? Magnetic pass-through? I, I mean, it even has the little icon, which means... It's got to be doing something, right? Uh, I think I think uh, you could probably find a, an iPad case also that that works. I think that I wish that there was something that was uh, there isn't one that does the same thing that my phone case does. This is the Peak Design phone case, and what's nice about this one, thank you, Osmic. Um, the uh, the the nice thing about this is that it's a system. So it, it, it hooks to tripods, it hooks to, I have a car snap-in, I have lots of different things. So it's a whole system that's that's based on the, the case. And it does charging and it does, but you'll see this little square. If I put it up there, you'll see that little square. That's a, that's actually an attachment for the, for the tripod connection. And the advantage of that is that it it locks in and it really locks in. It's not just the magnet anymore. Um, so um, so it's, it's a really, um, this is the best, I mean, I have... The only confusing thing is now I have multiple phones with with Peak Design, and my my wife has one with Peak Design, so we have to figure out whose phone is whose. But that's the only problem we have. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. It is surprisingly hard. I just looked for a magnetic pass through stand for the iPad Pro, and there there really aren't very many. So yeah, um, yeah I, I think it is absolutely intended to be to be used naked. And uh, Bill. Yeah, in branding, we're starting to see the circular things, and I saw that on Chris's as well. I think that's kind of the, this is good for MagSafe, the new new generation of MagSafe. I, too, have not seen any of those on iPad cases to this point. Might be coming. Yeah, go ahead, CJ. And what you'd want to look for, I think, is if you go into this, uh, if you go onto their site, they do sell a case to go with it but if regardless of the case you want to look for does it have the little three dots that it's going to have the pass through for the smart connector 
and any sort of lines indicating that there might be magnets on the back. Now, who sells that case? Uh, this is from the company that makes the stand. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, very good. Um, that's interesting. And who's the company again? Can you repeat that? It's a that? K-U-X-I-U. K-U-X-I-U. I've never heard of them, but... Cool. Um, next question. Uh, another unpronounceable set of letters. Uh, this one, Douglas Carmichael. The YouTube spatial audio specs mention bringing your mono 360 video into your spatial workstation plug-in within your digital audio workstation. What spatial workstation plug-in would you use for such a workflow? Um... Your 3D, your video, as far as video goes, I mean, we're going to, we don't know what we're going to see at the Final Cut uh, Summit on, you know, Bill will tell us, but, but I, I am going to venture that there will be more spatial, um, there'll be more spatial things to talk about um, between logic and, and uh, Final Cut and motion and maybe motion, we'll see. Um because I think that, that, you know, Apple needs a development tool for Vision Pro. And I am completely spitballing. Like, I have no information, no insider, you know, no him. No, I haven't heard any vibrations in the in the force. You know, like, all of it is just, I am just guessing that Apple has these two products. And the primary value of those products to Apple, and I think is going over the next two years, is going to be delivering video solutions to the to the Vision Pro. And so I think that, you know, the time to do that would be at the summit. So let's, let's see what happens then. Um, outside of that, um, I think that there's, there's some 360 tools that are already built into, into Premiere and, and into Resolve. And of course, the, the, the high-end 360 video stuff is all done like in Nuke. You know, so, so those are the things to think about as well. Next question. Paul Wallace, Cedar Creek, Texas. What electric van is best for hauling around equipment and having a studio? And that's a uh, QR code question. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. I look at the new Ford Ford line of uh, uh, Ford Pro. They have a whole line of uh, electric vehicles, uh, the Transit Connect. They have an electric version of that, this one over here, the E-Transit. And then they have the F-150 Lightning, which has, you have the ability to haul around a bunch of stuff, plus it's got a dually cab, so you could put a little bit of a mobile studio in the back uh, in the back seat cab and uh, drive around on your Lightning Pro. A lot of them are sold through their fleet sales, so you might check uh, with them if uh, your local dealer doesn't have them. They're designed for uh, fleet sales to companies that have a fleet of electric uh, vans or vehicles. There aren't too many commercial electric vans out there, uh, a few crossovers. But they're just now starting to come in. Uh, the cross, electric crossovers are, the full-size electric crossovers are just starting to come out now. Go ahead, Jeff. Being a, uh, a Texan and uh, in southeast Texas where oil is king, I have been fighting the fight and uh, pushing electric for quite a while. So I've got a couple of Teslas and uh, a Model X and a Model S. And we've outfitted our Model X to build a studio inside of that. I believe many of you have seen that. Uh, I have also vans because vans are still necessary whenever you need more space and you need more uh, capacity to carry. The problem is with vans and electric, I've been following them, been looking at them, been salivating over them. They just do not have the range unless you're strictly in town under 100 miles at most. 120 miles is the range on the transit, and that's nothing for us. I mean, we're doing 500 to 800 miles a day. Uh, when we're driving across country. So uh, for us, it never worked. Uh, if you were doing plumbing, uh, maybe small, uh, a little bit of just shop calls, things like that in a van, I could see where an electric van would be the case. Uh, 
just recently sprinters have uh the mercedes sprinter has pulled out their release i think they were like 225 or 250 miles uh from a range which is not bad uh, but the problem you will always find now if you're not in the tesla camp is until the NACS, which is the connector that Tesla uses, is now available to be uh, used by other manufacturers. There's a lot of others that have signed up for it, but the problem is they're not abundant yet to use what they call the magic dock, which allows you to adopt back and forth between the NACS or the other uh, connectors. If you're not using that and you don't have the supercharger network at your disposal, you could very well be in a pinch. And uh, it's just, they're just not there yet. There's too much loss. There's not enough battery capacity. And uh, the only other manufacturer that I'm following is Bollinger, which have a, uh, a new platform for what we would consider the uh, mid-sized truck market. So like the little Azuzus, little flat fronts that we see here in the U.S. Um, and more popular overseas uh, with a box on them. Uh, those guys are coming along and they're coming along fast after the electric market, but we're, we're still a ways away. Um, I'm still waiting on my semis as soon as they happen. And uh, end of this month, uh, cyber Fiber, cyber trucks will be an option, but we're still you, a ways. Did you order the, are you on the pre-order for the cyber truck? Yes. Yeah, thanks. I go ahead, Courtney. I'm sorry, Jason. Jason, and then Courtney. Um, yeah, I, I think everyone wants this badly to succeed. And my, my immediate answer is the ones being designed today are probably going to be great. Um, and that means five or ten years from now, they will, they will truly be practical. I go ahead, Courtney. And, and one that I've been salivating over, it isn't out yet, it should come out around the end of the year, is the Kia uh, EV9, which is a much larger version of the EV6. Uh, it is uh, in Europe right now. I think it's coming to the U.S. at the end of this year or beginning of next year. So, uh, And it has a pretty good range, I think uh, two, 280 miles, something like that. Do, do, you, do you cross the beams if you get like a big Chevy 350, uh, you know, um, and then put two Tesla batteries in the in the, in the back? No, it gets bad. There is actually somebody, uh, you guys know I have a, a larger truck also. So an mm. F650, there's somebody that actually was retrofitting uh, Teslas into those. So they were taking <laughs> out the diesel, the big diesel, and putting battery packs mm. underneath it and then putting uh, Tesla motors underneath it. Uh, yeah, it was. I always feel like we we had a you know our we had a twenty four foot trailer for a long a production trailer from Pixelcore, and uh, we had we pulled it with a three fifty and it, and built out the whole back end as like the all the other stuff that we needed and everything else. It was a great production thing, but it felt like we were it was how many gallons to the mile when we were pulling that thing. Like it was just it just <laughs> chewed, just chewed up gas. Uh, next question. This one comes to us from Guy Cochran in Seattle. Money no object. Oh, that's dangerous. How would you get a 4K feed from a trade show floor into the office hours system? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Money, no object. I love that. <laughs> um, anyhow, I'd recommend uh, the switch. That's the best way to get there. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Love you. Yeah, money no object. Uh, we're we're actually working on this for NAB. So money may be an object, but we have 
I have a pretty close relationship with Switch. <laughs> so so they, they were ready to help us with uh, uh, getting video out of um, New York, and we just weren't able to turn the New York one over. So um, so we're, we are looking at Vegas as far as it's a little easier, actually, for the Switch to support it there. Um, the live view is great, and we've done that in the past, and you can get four signals out of it, and you can get 4K and everything else. It is a little bit compressed um, compared to what we can do with the Switch, which is, I mean, the... You know, the live view is running at 20 or 30 megs a second, um, depending on 30, 30, I think when we go to 4K, we get up to 30 megs a second. Um, the Switch low bandwidth version is 270 megs a second. So it's it's a different, you know, and, and for the 4K, I think that's actually the SD, or no, that's the HD version is, is 270 megs a second. When you turn up the HD, I think it's nearly a gig and they're able to supply a 6G signal back to us uh, if they if if we wanted to. And so um, the way we would do that would be, I mean, the Switch is the, with money and no object, the Switch is the way to do this when you want to get completely uncompressed or nearly uncompressed footage, you know, back from a specific location. That said, I mean, the live view is a lot more flexible and we use it a lot and we're, we've been super happy with, with the, the, the results we've gotten from the 800. Um, but the Switch is a, um, you know, it's a different, it's a different thing, you know, and so, and um, it's not just that we can supply, we can, we can connect, it's a, we can essentially put an Ethernet connection into the system. So um, so it's not just that we can, like we're working on things with the switch where we can control DMX, uh, comms, everything is all coming through that pipeline. So there's like, you know, and it's, and, you know, we have two-way and we have, you know, we can send out multi multiple feeds. I mean, there's just an enormous amount of power, but you're, it's expensive. Like you are paying for a private fiber connection <laughs> to, to, you know, between two points. So it's, it's less expensive than using Vivix and it's less expensive than doing it yourself, you know, all, all the time. But the switch is an entirely different level of stuff. And, and again, we're, we're already working on that. We're already starting to do early planning for, uh, we weren't able to do it, but we had, a, you know, we had a, the process of getting into New York got us really into a great relationship with NAB. And we're really talking about what we can do at NAB for, for Vegas. And so, um, uh, but we expect to, have a booth space and be able to support that booth space at NAB and we'll probably have the switch supporting that location with a live view allowing us to go out into other locations and probably a mixture of wireless whether it's Teradek or somebody else covering so when you think about I, we think that we're finally going to after all this after years of doing coverage and everything else um, we think where we're going to get to is a is a is a is a booth with low latency wireless out about a couple hundred feet out into it where we can just be talking back and forth with the people that are there and then a live view that has a little higher latency that we can go anywhere with and potentially even multi-camera and everything else so that you know these things are all kind of but but we're now um you know all the work that's been done by all the teams has is kind of culminating in that in that larger thing go ahead mitchell couldn't you use a hybrid, uh, use the switch, and then plug your live view into that? It has Ethernet input, right? No, we could, but the the point of the of the the switch, the point of the live view is that we go place places we can't be wired to. Like that's what we're going to do with the live view. The live view means that we can go just about anywhere except for where the Panasonic booth is in the central hall, <laughs> like wherever wherever it used to be. <laughs> for whatever is reason, silence, there is a code. Like I can tell you, place, I, I've yeah. used a live view so many times in the central hall that I know exactly where I can and can't go. The, the, the live view in the past has worked everywhere 
in Moscow, I'm sorry, everywhere in the LVCC, except for the middle where the restaurants are below and the restrooms are below. Um, and there's this big concrete, I think it's just too much rebar there, but it's in that one transition point is where it falls apart. And even did when we did the test the last time we were walking, it went, and then it, then it came back out. And when you're off to the side, it works okay. But if, but I purposely did not go into that area knowing that like, that's the dead spot, you know, for the live view. But outside of that, I've used live views at, at, um, there for 15 years, um, you know, and it's, it, it works really well. So anyway, point is. Um, the, the big advantage of the switch is that the connection to our our show will be measured in frames, single frames. You know, like we will be uh, at most, you know, it'll be, um, you know, by then we might even be able to get excess in, you know, in, into the system. And that means our, the connection to the show will be, you know, very, very low latency. <laughs> you know, so, so that's the big advantage that we have. It'll be almost invisible, you know, to it. In fact, the, the, the any zoom latency we have will be higher um, to than, than what the switch will do. So it's, um, it'd be pretty exciting. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel of Breckenridge, Colorado. Anybody using a small rig VB99 battery to power their USB 3 or Thunderbolt hub with SSD drive for ProRes recording possibly? Um, I have not done it that way. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't supply enough power to do that. It's just not that, not that much power. I have three of those, uh, the, the 99s, um, and I use them like... If you see the behind the scenes, we've shown some of the behind the scenes in the past. Those I got these V-mount 99s on the back and then there's just wires hanging out of them. In fact, what I do is I take the, there's a battery mount that Small Rig makes and I put those on that on rails and then I take the V99 and I throw it onto the, onto that battery mount and that gives me even more outputs from it, <laughs> you know, and it's, uh, and it works, I find it to work exceptionally well. So, um, so I would, uh. I would I would highly recommend it. Next question. Chris is in from Ottawa, and Chris asks, uh, Hello, Office Hours. I'm a big fan, so I wanted to drop a quick question on how to export the transparent video from After Effects because I want to use this footage in DaVinci Resolve and also wanted to ask if there are any place or websites he can do something which got cut off. Sorry. Go ahead, Mitchell. Well, we can help you right here, and After Hours is another place you can go to if you want more detail. But in After Effects, uh, what you want to do is go to the QuickTime and select the ProRes 444 codec. And then once you've done that, make sure that it's RGB plus alpha because the transparency is created by the alpha. And once you've done that, uh, you should have a file that you can just drop right in, and it will respect the, uh, the alpha channel. In the old days, we used to use the animation codec, which occasionally I still do. You still use the animation codec? Oh, yeah. It's my favorite little buddy. <laughs> uh, sorry. I, 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 I haven't used animation codec for 15 years, but it was like all I, you know, everything was exported out of animation codec for a long time. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Yeah. Um, you just need 444 and then the last four, and that's it. And it'll go right in. Yeah. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Uh, first order ambisonic mic with four or six SPDIF cables, uh, audio to digital converter in mic. I guess that's the question is, is there one? And I don't is know of any that, that yeah. does a SPDIF um, uh, output. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. No, I mean, SPDIF, it should only need one, right? SPDIF can do that many outs straight away, 
No, no, can do it, but I don't know of any mic that does that. I think you'd, no, you'd yeah, have to no go idea. into some kind of converter <laughs> that's going to convert it to a spit if you know, like to to make that actually work. So, um, you know, the uh, the Sennheiser that I have here, the Ambio, I, I don't have it quite in. Maybe I do. Anyway, it's got four outputs. You, you, what you have to do is have to have a you have to have a converter box. Now, the core that I that I that has eight uh, mics. There's a picture. Just yeah, there's oh, there's a picture of the oh, that's the Sennheiser Ambio, and and that has a. Uh, um, that's that's worked pretty well. Um, the uh, now another one that I'm haven't gotten out to testing because of this big move that we're doing is I did get one of these um, the little uh, zoom ones, you know, to make it a little more portable. You can record it all in in the mic, um, and it does have I think binaural out, um, but I haven't um, haven't haven't had time. I have it sitting here waiting for me to take it out and. Um, I've been slowly putting together the system to build these. I know it sounds crazy, but when we get back to HDR, I have this really fun pipeline to build um, uh, high dynamic range countdown clocks, which we're not going to talk about tomorrow, but, but I'll talk about it if you ask about it. Uh, anyway, go ahead, Courtney. Blinded by the clock. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah, waiting to sing exactly. a little song. Now, if uh, if you're going to put ambisonic uh, and have spidiff out, you're going to have to have power inside the microphone. So that may be one problem why there are no such things right now, because you'd have to power the eight eighty. Well, we do power the Ambio. The Ambio is forty eight. Yeah, well, forty eight if it's coming in, but if it's spidiff out, spidiff oh, yeah, doesn't yeah. carry power. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be interesting. Well, there we go. Look at that. Perfectly timed. We're at the end of our questions and uh, we're at the end of the hour. It's uh, it's a perfectly timed uh, Q&A. Really great panel today. Uh, you know, just, you know, Mondays are usually like, we're uh, a couple of us there. We're ready to answer it. And we just had a really great collection of folks here. Hopefully a lot of folks will be part of our labs and our Q&As and everything else. Um, you know, this is, it's a really, it makes a huge difference, uh, especially in this month because we're going to be kind of in transition. Um, and, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think there's going to be parts of the second hour that are kind of reminiscent of the old days uh, where we're kind of fiddling about and, and looking at stuff. So, uh, so I think it's, I think it'll be really a fun um, shift for the next uh, month, maybe two, as we make, the, as we make the transition, we're going to be working on a bunch of things. Basically we're, again, we're, my goal is to actually try, we'll see, we'll have either two or three setups completely built in hardware um, in the next three, the uh, next two months, by the end of the next two months. And then and also we'll have a Zoom solution that is uh, reasonable, you know, for what we're doing. And then we'll go into the new year with a lot of, and, and what that means is not just that we have a backup. It means I can take systems down and run them on another. I can go over and I can tell, ask John like, hey, can we run this for a week, <laughs> you know, like over there and uh, exercise it and, and work on something that we want to change or something like that. And we just haven't had that flexibility before. So anyway, thanks to the panelists for a great two hours of Q&A. Uh, thanks to the, um, to the producers for that uh, really, really great set of questions that you all produced. Uh, remember that you can ask those questions in askofficehours.global uh, any time of the day. So it, it's really nice when we get in there in the morning and you're like, oh, it's not that many questions. And you go into the into the QR code and there's like a whole bunch of questions all sitting there. It's really nice to be able to just move those in. So so anyway, so um, go ahead and throw those in any time of the day that you think of them. The best time to ask a question is when you think of it. So that's one of the great things about this new system um, is that you can do that. Um, so, but thank you so much for all the great questions and thanks to the incredible team that has the lift, not just, you know, by, uh, the, not just into the hardware, but doing the zoom yesterday and, and all the things that are happening, the development team is doing just an amazing job at, um, at, at making this happen and, and putting all the things together so that we have that. And we just really appreciate everybody's contribution to that. It's just, it's, 
it's an amazing group that we've we've kind of coalesced together. So really, really, um, really awesome. So thank you so much for all the great work. Uh, we traveled 76,000 miles. That's 123,000 kilometers, and that is 608 million bananas for scale. All right, let's jump, jump into after hours. Green. Oh, there we go. Oh, green flash, sunset. Exactly. I've never seen green. the green flash. I've heard of the green flash. Is that an NDI thing? The more, yeah, the, <laughs> the more uh, run the green flash is that you drink. The global The global NDI happen? failure. It's the credits Halloween costume. Hmm? It's the credits Halloween costume. The green flash. Yeah, that's right. It's dressing up as a green screen. (laughs) Remember that we'll. I'll jump into after hours right after the Mac break thing today. So, um, so hopefully we'll all get to talk. We'll try that as a different thing. I think. Yeah, it'll be fun. Five o'clock. Five six p.m. Then. Uh, It's a five o'clock is when we're doing it. Yeah, and so it'll be probably five thirty or six. Yeah. The 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 show. It's the 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 announcement itself is at five. I I. I'll be surprised if it's more than 20 minutes, but um, but we'll see. I mean, without without a big pomp and circumstance, I don't know. Eight if they... Eastern is a tall order. <laughs> you gotta try. All right, all right, see you guys.